Christopher, I've Here. taken two Tums in preparation for tonight. So needless to say, I'm extremely excited about this. That sounds like a lot of heartburn. Two Tums? Yeah, I took two Tums because I had meat sauce. So, um, you know, how the, the, the tomato acid, you know, there's, I don't even know if that makes sense, but you understand what I'm saying. And I know all the Italian people understand what I'm saying when the tomato acid gets in your esophagus and you can't get it out the entire night, no matter how much water you drink. Not sponsored by Tums, by the way. Now, uh, by the way, the Tums that I took were about two years old and they were as hard as a rock. So uh, I felt them going all the way down. That was there, a little tough. There goes that sponsorship from Tums. Yeah. Well, I mean, it has nothing to do with the Tums, honestly. It just has to do with the fact that I, I'm, I replace my, I, I don't even, do you even call that medicine? What do you even call Tums? Uh, I call it chalk. Like you could write on a chalkboard. Okay. I replace my chalk um, unceremoniously. Let's, let's just leave it like that. And with that anecdote, this is episode two <laughs> of season two. And I have a very special guest with me today. This is very nostalgic for me. My, is that my cue? I don't know. No, no. I was, I was going to keep talking, buddy. You keep going. I'll shut right, up. Listen. Yeah, just shut up, Chris. Um, I've spoken about this guy many times before. And he's finally here in the flesh over Zoom. Because <laughs> that's how we have to do things nowadays. Christopher Cross Rubio is in the stew. That's your middle name, right, Cross? For now, yeah, it, we'll make that the the middle name. Chris is a, a, a probably my best friend, honestly. Um, I just hit my elbow really hard on my desk there. I don't know if you saw that, but Christopher is probably my best friend, and I love the kid, and I'm really excited to have him on because we are going to talk a ton of stuff today. Um, Christopher, what would you like to say to my my audience that's hungry to hear your voice right now? Peter. Peter Andrasani was my best friend until he came into our fantasy league and just took it by storm, thoroughly dominated and is the champion. So congratulations, by the way, in case anybody was keeping up with that. Yeah, Peter did win and uh, I hate him now. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. All the love and support. But um, to be honest with you, Chris, and you know this, that I've been the San Jose Sharks of our fantasy football league for the past like 10 years now. No longer, my friend. You are. I finally got the elusive championship that I so desired. You are among hallowed ground. Speaking of trying to get an elusive championship that someone so desires, we have to dive into this James Harden trade. That's a beautiful segue. I just, can we, if we can get an instant replay on that. Oh, wait. Sorry. It's a podcast. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. It's a podcast and it's also Zoom. So. All right. Um, Well, Harden trade, eh? In case you live under a rock. And the only thing that you listen to throughout the week is this podcast, which I'd be thoroughly humbled if that was actually the case, but that's not the case. The new, I was going to say the New Jersey Nets, the Brooklyn Nets acquired all NBA talent, James Harden, in a ludicrous like 500 team deal that saw 400 draft picks go a couple different ways. Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, Tareen Prince go to other teams i think what was it the cavaliers got uh prince and And allen Allen. yeah the rockets got lavert and then they flipped lavert and a couple picks for victor oladipo um so the rockets do have victor oladipo now the Cavs have two star players have a ton of picks uh indiana 
got I don't know were they trying to get rid of Oladipo like I never understood I thought he was always coming to the Knicks. That's what I. That's that was my assessment. But I'm a Knicks fan, and I think everyone's coming to the Knicks. So yeah, that was definitely one of the weirder parts of the trade, especially when it was being reported, and I don't remember who exactly. You know, the beauty of NBA uh, trade wire reporting. Uh, you don't remember who it is unless it's Woj. Yeah, but um, fair. Somebody was reporting that uh, for as far as like multi-team deals went down uh, towards the end, it was like pretty much a done deal it was going to be between just the nets and the rockets so the fact that the pacers and cavaliers made their way into this trade is i it doesn't make sense with them in it but now that they're in it you did a good job making sense of it you know if you haven't checked out the youtube video by the way it's uh on the ttl sports youtube page it's only seven minutes long and you have seven minutes so go watch it now seven on your side there you go what a plug that was. Wow. I didn't never even ask for that. That was, that was gorgeous. You, you filled in nicely. I must say with the, I'm plug, a fan first with the, with the plug aspect. But if you really like actually dive into the trade a little bit, like, what did you tell me? Cause if you actually do watch the YouTube video that I put out, I didn't even go into the number of picks because it was just a ludicrous amount. But what did you, you enlightened me that it was eight picks or something like that. Yeah, I believe it's seven from the Nets, four of which are pick swaps, and oh then God. the last pick is coming from I think Cleveland, or I don't remember, or maybe it's uh, uh, I'll get back to you. I I know it's I think it might be Cleveland. It's absolutely ridiculous. So what I'm hearing is, oh, this is what I'm what I'm looking at right here. It says I'll just read the whole thing because that's the only way it'll make sense. In the trade, the Nets send center Jared Allen and forward Tareen Prince to Cleveland. And guard Karis Levert and forward whatever that guy's name is, can can never say it. As well as oh, three first you. round picks. <laughs> oh no, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, as well as three first round picks, 2022, 2024, and 2026, and four first round pick swaps in 2021, 2023, 2025, and 2027 to Houston. Rodian okay. Karutz. There you go, Karutz. That's right. Now that you said it, it really doesn't sound as hard as I thought it was going to be, but. I wrote it out phonetically just for that, just for that, to that occurrence. Come and prepared. I love it. I try my best. I'm an avid follower. If I mean, you know, this of the Michael K show. Right. So I heard an, an interesting anecdote the other day that the Brooklyn Nets won't have control of their first round pick from, I think it was 2014 until 2027. Right. Because in case, anyone's just getting into basketball this isn't the first time the nets have tried a really ridiculous big three for a two-year three-year championship window think about that how crazy that i know that like we both know that first round picks in basketball don't mean as much as they do in other sports Mm. i mean unless it's a lottery pick it really doesn't really matter you're really getting a, a role player at that point if it's the back end of the first round uh, unless you find a diamond in the rough like Giannis Atanacupo and stuff like that you're not really getting the cream of the crop essentially as far as superstars go maybe but I think Levert is like a 20 overall and then I think Allen is not a lot I don't think I don't know if Jared Allen's a lottery pick actually I should I should find out but um what I'm trying to get at is like well think about how how many bad Nets teams there were in that time where they could have definitely got oh, yeah. a lottery pick oh you're right yeah so it, it's crazy that like you go 14 seasons without a first round pick like that's that's got to be some kind of record or, or or close to a record like i i don't understand how that works but um essentially what i really want to say about it is 
if you didn't think that the Nets were all in getting Kyrie, getting KD, letting them both essentially sit for a whole season, paying them all that money, and now trading basically their entire future and their present, if you think about it, for right. James Harden. Now, granted, James Harden, in his right state of mind and when he wants to play basketball and when he wants to show up, he is, I don't think, without a doubt, a top five player in today's NBA. Right. Well, you covered it. Like I said, you covered it very well in the video. Um, I think the Nets are consistent depth away from running away with the East. Uh, the East is consistently the worst of the two conferences. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, if Kyrie comes back, it's, I guess it's not guaranteed. I, I, I think he's kind of, I think Steve Nash might have said after the game that he's coming back or he's close to coming back. Um, but assuming he comes back and plays the level that he can play and integrates well with KD and Harden, uh, yeah, I, is there anyone who looks more of a short thing in the East than the Nets as far as just scoring and talent goes? I, I mean, I, I mean, scoring that there will never be a problem scoring with those three guys on the court. Um, defense is the one thing that will suffer because the Nets traded their rim protector and their best defender in Jared Allen, which was essentially really their only defender. If you really think about it, because you got to put some respect on my boy, TLC, Timothy Luau Karabat. I do love, I do love that name. He's he's a okay. He's not better. He's not a better defender than Jared <laughs> Allen. But you know, you're right. <laughs> but essentially, what I'm saying is, if you look at if you look at a projected started starting five, or even some of the guys that come right off the bench, real quick, no one stands out as a defender. You know, you got Landry Shamet, who, like I said in the video, is literally a liability. Like teams actually game plan to attack him on the defensive on the defensive side because he's just that bad. Same thing, Joe Harris. Joe Harris like holds his own. He's not known for defense. He's known for shooting three-pointers and crossing over Luka Donich. Like, that's really the only two things that he's known for. But, you know, KD might be, like, the second best, the best or the second best defender on this team. And that's something that he probably was never going to be asked to do. But now I'm sure Sean Marks and company have been like, listen, you know, like – you wanted you wanted Kyrie or not not Kyrie really wanted KD but you wanted James Harden it it's prevalent now after the finalization of the trade when KD finally spoke out he said that he desperately wanted Harden which I don't re- I don't necessarily think is true either I don't think he desperately wanted Harden but I think he definitely wanted Harden on the team so you're gonna have to give a little to get you know what I'm saying because you're gonna have to cover for his defensive woes. Well, wasn't it Kyrie last year who said uh, this team's not good enough? And I think he meant even like projecting it with him and KD on, on the floor. I think he was saying this team's not good enough. He was saying it last year. Oh, that's a good team, but it's not like it's a great team. Something like that. Which I think is crazy because say this trade was never made. I do think that the Nets have one of the deepest teams in basketball. Sure. Like without a doubt, especially like, all right, like Dinwiddie's hurt, but say like, say if you look at the team, with no injuries. That team is deep. Like Vert, for whatever role you're going to give Landry Shamit right now, he does it, I think, 10 times better, assuming he stays healthy. No, yeah, 100%. Shamit is, is, a, is well, I was going to say 3 and D, but we know it's really just more 3 than, than D. But essentially, I mean, he's ice cold from the field right to start the season too, so he's essentially out there contributing nothing. That's his hallmark though, you're right. 
Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that's that is what he's supposed to be, but he doesn't play good defense. And I think he's shooting like a paltry like twenty seven percent from three point land so far this season, where Draymond Green has a better three point percentage. But um, I I was curious to see how this would work, like in an actual game. So Saturday, James Harden did play his first game with the Brooklyn Nets, and it was James Harden and Kevin Durant on the floor at the same time. And Jesus Christ, like. What we just said exactly came true. Like scoring wasn't going to be a problem. The defense wasn't there. James Harden's going to do what James Harden does. And Kevin Durant's going to look like the best pure scorer in the NBA where Harden had 32 points, 14 assists, 12 rebounds. And I think KD had like 42 points or something like that. It's like you said, it's an easy triple double and just enough to beat uh, the magic by seven points. Isn't that sad, though? I know, like, we were talking about the, the Magic aren't a pushover by any means whatsoever, but a team with that much star power, you know what I mean? Like, you're only winning by seven. It was a close game throughout. Um, but, I mean, Harden just looked – and also, like, I, I thought it was funny, too, on Twitter. I saw, like, people were thinking that he was wearing a fat suit on, like, his last couple, like, days oh, in Houston <laughs> because, because like, he looked so big. I think it was just, like, the picture. Like, he looked a little bloated, and the fact that he had, like, his – his jersey and his warm up like tucked into his pants. So it just made him look like two times his size. And then they right. they had like a side by side of that. And then his first picture of him like warming up for Brooklyn. And he looked like his regular game shape. And it was like this man is a shapeshifter. So like or some people were like, wow, he wore a fat suit to get out of Houston and now like he shed the fat suit and now he looks normal again. But And the controversy begins. And the conspiracy theorists are out there. Bam. He's just diving like into this. Yeah. But, I mean, really the last I, – I don't even want to really say anything further, but just I think that the Nets aren't going to have a problem throughout the season, especially if Kyrie comes back. Like, I think they march to the top of the East, and I don't really think there's anyone that could stop them. Like, Toronto is definitely not what they were the last couple seasons. Um, the only team that might give them problems consistently throughout the season, which I'm thinking is Boston, only because they have good defenders. And – they can score at an alarming rate, but I mean, they also just lost by 30 to the Knicks today, but they were shorthanded. I just thought I'd put that out there that the Knicks did beat the Celtics by 30. It's a small victory for me, but in reality, I think they were down like seven or eight players. So, well, you're more up to date on the NBA. You're a little more up to date on the NBA than I am. I was kind of just stuck to football all day. Um, I actually just didn't fine. catch the the Harden game. There must see TV now, so uh, this is going to be a rare occurrence where I don't watch a Nets game now, uh, especially since we live in New York. So can't miss them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the Knicks. You said what? You say the Knicks beat the Celtics by thirty. Thirty points. I just thought I'd emphasize that because. I don't think I was alive the last time that that happened. So um, I'm not even a I'm not even a Knicks fan. I'm I'm a Sixers fan, but you know, the salty all the way. I I respect that. I'm not salty because I never expect the Knicks to win. So anytime that they win by one is a plus. But like I was getting to it before, I think that the Celtics might be the only team that stops them going to the top. I don't really see them losing all the way to the final. I still think that the NBA is run is run by the Lakers and LeBron James. Like I still think that no matter what team meets the Lakers in the final is going to lose. 
Well, it's early to tell because it's it's kind of early to tell because there are going to be challenges. And with every kind of trade like this, there's like growing pains, especially just getting that fit together. Um, and I, you detail it pretty well talking about the championship window. It's not like it's multiple years. I mean, this core here, if you want to call it that, is together, you think two or three years. And that's a lot of, a lot of capital uh, in terms of NBA uh, commodities that they gave up for a two to three year shot. So yeah. my hope is that for that to be successful, Boston doesn't pose that much of a challenge, but you're absolutely right that if anyone is going to, you know, meet them at the top there, uh, look for the Celtics, look for the Lakers. Uh, just, I mean, obviously anyone who's in the top of the NBA right now, can they get past those guys? I don't know. I don't even think this team is really better than like, if you want to call it the super teams of, of golden state, mm-hmm. um, just because of the contributions they were able to get from like key bench players, the, like NBA look uh, passovers, like uh, journeyman, they yeah. don't have that right now, or at least no, we don't you, think they have that right now. But you absolutely nailed it on the head. It's like at least you were getting guys like what? What was it like? I'm drawing a blank on a few names. Leandro like, Barbosa. Yeah, like Patrick <laughs> McCaw, like Kevin Looney, like guys like that. Where it was like, oh, they play like right. solid. They play like solid bench roles and they know what their role is. Like I'm pretty sure that the Nets could only field about nine guys right now because they just have like no one else. So um, one of my coworkers actually like outlined it pretty good. He was like, they're going to have to go down. Either they make another trade with the little assets that they have left to try and get a good defender, which I don't even think is worth it at this point. You might as you might as well go down to the G league find someone that only really plays defense and is a wing player and just sign him and bring him up to the roster because it's pretty much, it's, it's bare bones. That's yeah. all you're going to be. Cause you know, all your, like you said, your capital essentially payroll wise is just invested in those three guys. It's over a hundred million dollars for those three guys alone. Yeah. And uh, Deandre Jordan's under contract too, for the three years that uh, Durant Harden and Irving are under contract. So that doesn't, that's a $10 million and not getting back. I don't, we didn't even talk about his fit on the team, you know, but well, I mean, his fit is literally, I mean, he can't, he cannot duplicate what Jared Allen does for the nets. Like, yes, he could still rebound. Yeah. Well, he siphoned, he siphoned a whole bunch of starts from Allen too, which is interesting. He's moving to a team that already has a center in in, uh, Andre Drummond. Yeah. Uh, So well, that could be nepotism at its finest because DeAndre Jordan and Kevin Durant are really good friends. Oh, you think? You think that's what it is? I, I mean, the NBA is the most clicky sport, I think, right. in the world. So I really think that, you know, the players are kings. So if Kevin Durant went to Steve Nash and was like, look, I like Jared Allen, but I don't like his afro. And I'd rather see DeAndre Jordan's dreads out there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's probably what he said to him and was like, oh, okay, like, I guess so. Like, I'm just a figurehead and I'm, I'm just a puppet master. Like I don't, I don't really have any role on this, on this team at all because I'm just a former, I'm a, a hall of fame player that, you know, is a first time coach. So, and he, he's coaching two now three of the biggest personalities in the sport. So really what say does he have? Well, I hope it's not that clicky, but you know, I maybe you're right. <laughs> the dreads in the Afro were a clear joke. I, I, I hope everyone knows that. Um, clear joke. I, clear joke i mean it was clear to me i don't know if it was as clear to you guys but um yeah i think that like in terms of the trade it'll work out like like to regular season success will their defensive woes 
be exploited in the playoffs when they meet a team in the West if they do make the finals? I think so. I think that you can't go an entire season and an entire playoff run trying to score over 120 points a game to compensate for the fact that you have no good defensive players. I think you're going to burn yourself out. And with players that are in their 30s or damn well close to their 30s and are towards the back end of their prime and you know want to make all this money and maybe their heart isn't 100% into it, you know, that that's a, a terrible way to try and play basketball. Well, they'll be selling out seats in the empty arenas thanks to COVID-19. So at least there's that benefit, right? That's definitely true. You know, you were, you were just nailing it on the head with these, with these comments. I, I love it. Try my best. The Quick, next thing- uh, so, oh, uh, sorry, I just wanted to close on uh, Karis LeVert getting the MRI that uh, revealed that he had the uh, small mass on his kidney. Uh, he's a big part of the trade somehow. I don't really know how he ended up being such a big part of the trade. It depends how you look at it. Maybe he's trade fodder. Maybe he's a big part of the trade. I think he's a big part of the trade. I think he's talented. Um, uh, hope he gets back soon. <laughs> It's crazy how things like that work where it's like maybe – I mean, we don't really know what the mass is. I don't know if any news right. came out today, but, um, you know, it, it's undisclosed at this point. And it's funny how maybe if he didn't get traded, maybe he doesn't MRI never gets taken place, you know, never takes place. They never find the mass, you know, before – God forbid it, it could have been too late. So it's funny, it's funny how things work in mysterious ways like that, but – that's a good anecdote to, to leave off on. You know, I wish Karis LeVert the best, and I hope and if it is something that's detri- detrimental to his health, I hope he has a speedy recovery and he gets back on the court as soon as possible. Yeah, really good basketball player, so hope to see him back out there soon. Definitely. Now, you, you said really good basketball player. Let's talk about the greatest player in Yankee history that just got re-signed. Oh, you're talking about um, – wait, hold on. Uh, is, is it, uh, is it the guy who, who's not, I, I was trying to do the quick math on, on the AAV, but I have no idea. Matt, my math is very bad. Um, you don't mean DJ LeMahieu though, do you? Of course I mean DJ LeMahieu. DJ LeMahieu, who signed a six year, $90 million deal to stay with the New York Yankees through, Uh-oh. well, the rest of my life. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I'll tell you like how I, I told you this on the phone a couple of days ago, but how I basically found out was. Uh, my girlfriend works overnight shifts at a hospital as a nurse and shout out, Sam. Was, shout out Samantha. Um, as you know, I, I work Sunday through Thursday. So Thursday night, you know, I'm sleeping, whatever. And Friday I have all day to sleep and everything. I was all excited. And I get like a text from her at like seven, seven thirty or seven forty-five, something like that, like early in the morning. To the point, not, not so early, but early enough where you're like, oh, God, like I have all day to sleep and this is the time that I wake up, like something like that. So uh, essentially, I wake up. I She has a distinct text on my phone, like the vibration. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So like, like subconsciously, like every time she texts me and it's any time at night, like I always either wake up or I just hear it somehow. So I woke up and I turned over and I saw it and I was like, oh, like it's so early and I know I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep. And then I looked at the rest of my notifications and then I saw that it said that DJ LeMahieu was close to finalizing a deal with the Yankees and immediately I like sprang out of my bed like it was Mary Poppins the musical. He was, I was so happy to see that Sam texted him. That's why he sprang out of bed. And then he noticed DJ LeMahieu also signed with the Yankees, which is a big win also. I, I was just so excited and I was waiting all morning for the news because it said they were close to finalizing. So I had, you already know, I had MLB Network on 
And as soon as it came out, I was like, first off, I waited all morning to hear the news that he signed. And then I was in the bathroom when the logistics of the deal came out. And my dad knocked on the door, scared the crap out of me and said six years, 90 million. And I thought I misheard him. I thought he said six years, 190 million. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, six years, $90 million. That's it. For the math heads out there, it's 15 million per season. I just, it took me forever. And that, that is basically a bargain in today's MLB. And especially since DJ LeMahieu initially came over to the Yankees on a two year, $24 million deal. Essentially, he, he, he did win a batting title in the NL with the Rockies. And I did feel like he was disrespected throughout his whole career up until that point because he was yeah. a gold glove winning second baseman, won a batting title. Everyone was like, oh, you know, it's Colorado. Like, you know, he can't hit anywhere else, even though his road numbers were better than his home numbers. But I digress, whatever. So he signs with the Yankees, you know, $12 million AAV. And, and essentially two years later, after coming off of, a fantastic season two years ago. And then, uh, you know, a COVID shortened 2020 where he won the batting title and batted like 366 or 368. One of those numbers team MVP team MVP. And he only gets a $3 million per season raise. Like people that are saying that this is a bad deal because it's six years. Don't even talk to me until you look at probably the deal that Aaron judge is going to get the deal that John Carlos Stanton has. And then ask me again in six years, how the Garrett Cole deal is working out and then get back to me. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, $15 million for, uh, for a, a, a batting title winning gold glove caliber second baseman is an absolute rarity. And I think the Yankees, despite what I've said about them in recent podcasts and in videos saying that they were waiting too long, I think they made the absolute right decision. I think they gave him the right amount of years and he took less money to get more years. So it was a no brainer in my opinion. Well, yeah, exactly that. The less money for more years, because um, there has to be something, right? I I mean, uh, Brian Cashman was holding out for much longer than you had expected, than I expected, than everyone had expected, especially dealing with, like you said, a gold glove batting title caliber second baseman who, Team MVP, say what you want about it, but it's the Yankees. They're like full of superstars. So team MVP out of that group, granted everyone was hurt last year. He still was the best. He's been the best since he got here. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he was to, like negotiating for this much time with LeMayhew on six years, 90 million, I mean, I really wonder just how how stingy, like how how cheap of a deal they they were really looking at here that they finally hit six years, 90 million. I mean, what was the starting point for a deal for a player like him? You you were telling me the other day, you think it was like 20 million a season at least had to have been the, the low water mark for what it, he was negotiating. Honestly, if it came out that the Yankees got LeMahieu for, I don't know, six years, $130 million, where it's like 20, wow, terrible at math. I don't know, say anywhere between 22, $23 million a season. I'd be, that's still a bargain. But yeah. I think what it started at was DJ LeMahieu wanted five or six years and the Yankees wanted to give him four for probably about, I, I think initially what I heard was four years, $100 million, which would have given him $25 million a year. But at the same time, 36 years old in today's MLB still really isn't that even old. I guess you are on the back end of your career, but you could still play for another couple seasons. So I think LeMahieu wanted that security of, you know, playing probably until what is he? He'll be 38 
closing in on 39 by the time the deal is over. Just like everyone else who signs a seven-year, eight-year deal. Exactly. They're going to be 40 when it's over. And we're like, well, who cares? Let's see what happens. Exactly. And what I heard was the numbers came out after he signed that the Blue Jays offered him four years, $78 million, which translates to, I think, like $18.5 million a year or something like that. So obviously more money, but not as much stability. And also what I think could have worked in the Yankees' favor too with that is that Toronto doesn't really have a home for the foreseeable future because of the Canadian government with baseball. So Darn why would Justin you move? Trudeau, what are you doing? You could have had <laughs> Dejale Mayhew on the Blue Jays. So, so like, why are you signing with a team for four years where that's not really much stability? Four years, if you think about it. You have to move to a city that your team's not even playing in right now. It just seemed like a whole big mess. And I honestly think that this is if this was a regular season – like a regular off season, maybe he would have taken that deal because Toronto seemed hell bent on getting DJ LeMahieu. And I also heard the Dodgers were in the mix. And that's when I started to get worried when I heard the Dodgers were in the mix, because we just talked about it before, who's going to play second base for the Dodgers. Right. So as soon as I heard that the Dodgers were in the mix, I was like, Oh dear God, Brian Cashman and your, your little buggy eyes and your receding hairline, just you brilliant man, just get a deal done. So we could stop worrying about it. And honestly, that was my biggest key for the Yankees going into this, you know, going into the 2021 season was just resign. If the only move they made was resigning DJ LeMahieu, I would have been a hundred percent happy with that. But later on that day, Chris, what did the Yankees do? They went out and signed former Cy Young winner and just superstar pitcher at one point in his career. He's not quite there anymore, but uh, Corey Kluber, like I said, former Cy Young winner, one year, two 11 time. million. De- oh, sorry, two time, two time Cy Young award winner, which fantastic that, that he would come to the Yankees on a one on a one year deal for eleven million dollars. I guess that proves just how bad his last year was. You know, not that he's fallen off the you know fallen off the baseball world, but he was injury he he was injury riddled the last couple seasons, so. This was essentially for him a prove it deal because when I heard that basically every team in the MLB sent scouts for his his bullpen right, session, what, yeah, that's why I was like, wow, like Corey Kluber, who's 33 years old, who's basically still in like the back end of his prime, like his last full season, I think he pitched to a 20 and seven record with like a 285 ERA, which at the time I think he was like 30, 31 years old, which is like, why, why? Why do people even need to see him pitch, like, to sign him? And, you know, once I heard that he was in the zone, he was throwing strikes, his breaking stuff looked nasty. To me, if you go into this offseason and you look at it, it's like, wow, Corey Kluber and the Yankees just are kind of like a match made in heaven where it's like the Yankees have all question marks behind Garrett Cole. And, you know, Corey Kluber's hungry. You know, he, he – why should he have to prove himself? He's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. You know, you go to a team that's basically set up to win, set up to compete for a World Series. You maybe get that World Series. You have a fantastic year, and you end out your career on a lucrative deal. You know, it just makes a ton of sense for Corey Kluber. And it makes a ton of sense, I'll tell you, in a, in a different way, Chris, as well, which I was trying to figure out in my head, which is the way that I figure it is the Yankees have about two or three players over the 40-man roster limit right now. Signing Corey Kluber also puts them um, just at or just below the tax threshold, Ooh. so which is okay. 
because they didn't go over. So if you're if you go over and you're a repeat offender, it's like a significant like jump in like fine. So the Yankees would be a repeat offender if they went over. So obviously they don't want to do that. Um so the way that I see it is this is a perfect setup now to trade for Luis Castillo. Oh, you're just you're just uh doing the GM in your head like you're you're on another level then. <laughs> well, I mean like I said before, I have a little bit of a sickness when it comes to this. And when I start playing around with the numbers and the roster and everything in my head, the way that I'm looking at it is, uh, you know, Castillo's coming off of two really good seasons. Um, it doesn't look like Bauer. Like the way that Cincinnati was going to win was if they were going to win last season. Right. Because like they had one of the best pitching rotations in the league. Like they were home runner bust pretty much. Like they were set up to be exactly what the MLB is moving in the direction of where it's like, you know, Good starting pitching, decent bullpen, home runs. That's basically what it is. And, right. you know, now that Bauer's probably not going to resign, you know, Gray, Gray is still there, but he might be a trade ship as well. Like Castillo, I believe, is still only 27, 28 years old. He's under control for this year and I think next year. It only makes sense to move him now. And the Yankees would be smart to move him the way that I figure it is if you give them, you're going to have to give to get, unfortunately. And the Yankees are going to have to overpay because they want to be under the tax threshold and they want to be under the, the, the roster limit too. So they're probably going to have to give up two, probably two good like MLB caliber players right now. And then probably two prospects. So the way that I'm thinking about it is they get Castillo, they give up Clint Frazier and Miguel Andujar, and they probably give up two of their, probably one of their top 10 pitching prospects and then another lower level pitching prospect. And that should get the job done. Uh, I'd be interested to see how a trade like that would actually work out. Um, You know, just putting all the names out there, it does seem like something that they could negotiate. Like, um, but I know MLB trades are like, you know, you know it too. It's they, they, they can make perfect sense on paper and it's like, well, sorry, we don't like that trade. So, um, but bringing a guy like Castillo on the Yankees, I mean, it would just be like even just – it would almost be like a luxury chip, even though he'd be one of the most talented pitchers on the roster. I mean, think about what Kluber's coming into right now. Um, Paxton didn't have a good year last year. And he's but, a free agent. Well, he's a free agent now? The Yankees have – what I mean by question marks behind Cole is that the Yankees have three free agents that – pitched in their rotation last year, which is Paxton, who essentially Paxton's gone because Paxton never really proved that he could pitch effectively in New York. Uh, Tanaka's a free agent, and then Jay Happ. So you got to figure they're going to sign one of the three, maybe, and that one of the three is probably going to be Tanaka. Oh, I'm not sure. I heard he's looking 15 to $20 million a season for on a one-year deal. Or at least that's what I saw earlier. Yeah, that's that's a little unfortunate. I was actually unbeknownst of that information, but um, I think it's going to sink the Tanaka ship. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But you know, you never know because these players say a lot of things. And then also, he said earlier in this week, he said either I sign with the Yankees or I go back to Japan and pitch. So it's it's night and day with these guys. You you don't know, but you're 100 percent right. But um, the way that I I see it is. You know, because they're going to get Severino back at some point, whether that's at the beginning of the season or the Yankees tend to take time. You know, they they take their time with their pitchers coming back from like major injuries and stuff like that. So say he even comes back in June, you know, say the Castillo trade happens, say, you know, you get, say you sign Tanaka somehow, right? Then right then and there, it's like, whoa, 
Like it's a big, it's a big rotation. Have, suddenly have the bet one of the best rotations in baseball. Say, say all that happens and you got. So the way that I would see it is Cole is the ace, obviously. Um, then you have probably Castillo is number two, Tanaka three, Severino is four, and maybe Kluber as your fifth. Imagine having the luxury of having Corey Kluber as your fifth starter. Well, That's I think he'd pitch better than that. He pitches way into the third or, or even oh, the second spot. 100%. Point, but, 100%. Second, but another thing, too, which, which I look at, which I really hope they do get Castillo in a trade, is because you look at the top two pitchers in Kluber and, and Cole, both fly ball pitchers in a right. band box stadium like Yankee Stadium. Scares the crap out of it me. It scares me. And you brought up a good point. You said that Kluber might pitch to the tune of a three ERA, but he could also give up 30 home runs in Yankee Stadium alone. Yeah. <laughs> did I say alone? Uh, I mean, it makes sense, but... I, <laughs> you did say that, and I was like, wow, that, that definitely makes sense. <laughs> and then if you get Castillo, Castillo is a sinker ball circle change pitcher, so he's a ground ball pitcher. So it makes me feel that much better about having at least one. And, you know, you know, Tanaka, if he resigns, he's up, he gives up way too many home runs. So definitely the Yankees are just full of pitchers. that give up way too many home runs. It would be nice to have a little bit of a change where, Hey, like this guy can get ground balls every once in a while. That's kind of nice. Yeah, no, you're hundred percent right. I mean, it's all, uh, it's all stuff on the Yankees and, uh, you know, they don't play to their home field as well as you would think they would. It's they're, they're, um, they turn around. We give up a lot of home runs by saying, "Well, we hit a lot of home runs." So that's something that's always um, that's always like kind of confused me about the Yankees. But um, in your scenario, they get to do all that and end up with a pretty solid rotation without even overpaying for Trevor Bauer, which is the thing I was most worried about. Like yeah. out of everything, it's and I don't mean overpaying for Bauer because I think he's not that good. I think he's I think he's a good player, but they just did it with Cole. Um, like you said, they have to sign at least one more of the, of the free agent pitchers. I didn't even know Paxton wasn't under control. I, you know, go show you how much I pay attention sometimes. Um, but yeah, there's a lot He's of money. Insignificant. Going back it's okay, Chris. I, I forgive you. Hey, the big maple, man. He's not insignificant, but, um, he's to us now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if all that were to work out, you, I mean, you don't even have to worry about Paxton didn't even mention, uh, I mean, some people are super high on, uh, Davey Garcia. I, I you know, obviously it's early to project him in, in a rotation consistently, but yeah. uh, he's got plenty of team control. And in, in spots last year, he showed you some flashes. You have Severino, like you said. Yeah. It's, the Yankees are, for once, instead of saying, well, we have Tanaka and somebody else pitching, you know, CeCe Sabathia coming back for his 97th year in the league. <laughs> um, it looks like it could be a position of strength, or so we hope. By the trade deadline, they, they may end up be out, they, they might be out there looking for a pitcher, you know? Yeah, <laughs> either everyone's injured or just like, you know, everyone has a terrible ERA. Kluber is, you know, pitching to the tune of an 8.39 ERA. And it's like, oh, well, that was a terrible signing. You never know. <laughs> it's, it's, an all, it's all of a crapshoot. But um, the one thing I do bring up, though, which, which kind of sucks with the Yankees, and I, I'm, I said it in an earlier YouTube video that I made about the Yankees, like a quick five-minute video was, it's unfortunate uh, first off, it's not unfortunate to be a Yankee fan. That's not what I was going to go with. But it's unfortunate to see the Yankees currently be in a win-now mode due to the fans, due to the pressure, due to the media. Because every single young player that comes through their farm system, you never get to see. There's only a select few that you get to see because it's like, well, either they're blue, you know, they're blue trade chips, you know what I'm saying? Or they come up for a cup of coffee. And then they get sent back down 
because everyone's like, oh, they suck. Like, can't, can't cut it in New York. First off, that is like my least favorite saying ever. I hate that. It's like, can't handle the pressure. It's like, yeah, shut up, man. Like, uh, shut the hell up. Like, you dude's, 19 years old. <laughs> dude's 19 years old pitching in front of 56,000 people. Like, you yeah. do better, you know, like at your age. The the so, 60 year old uh, scouts from New York sitting there on their couch at home going, like, ah, I've seen a lot of pitches in my day, and that kid, he don't got it. Yeah, and then it's like, yeah, it's a Sonny Gray situation where Gray had a 512 ERA in New York, and then he goes to Cincinnati and he's sparkling all over again. Some people really chasing him out of New York with pitchforks. Some people really can't crack it, crack it. Some people can't really cut it in New York. It's true, which I, I do, I do get. But at the same time, I would love to see. See, like I already know guys like Michael King, Luis Gill, David Garcia, Clark Schmidt. We're never gonna see them. Like unless they yeah. unless they pitch in the bullpen, we're never gonna see them because there's always this talk where it's like, maybe if the Yankees grew some balls for once, and it was like, well, you know what, we're gonna go into the season with Davy Garcia or Clark Schmidt as our fifth starter. It's like, no, no, that'll never happen. We're gonna use them as trade chips. And like I said, it's unfortunate to see. Hopefully, something changes soon. But for the foreseeable future, with the constant pressure of New York media fans it, it's never gonna happen yeah no that's I, I couldn't say it better myself that sounds like the Yankees sounds like a fan who's lived through a lot of Yankee years and I've only really I've only really been conscious for the most part for about 18 of them but since the time <laughs> I was six or seven years old I could already see I was like wow I was like the pressure in New York kind of tough sitting on my couch business. sweating for that poor pitcher who was on the mound but Bottom line, the Mayhew deal, Kluber deal, two big signs for the Yankees. I mean, just nothing else needs to be said after that even. Absolutely. I Let's leave it on that, actually. Now, <laughs> I didn't mean to cut you off, though. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's perfect. But essentially what this weekend was really about before, you know, Harden and Mayhew and everything like that was the NFL divisional round of the playoffs. And we had four really good matchups this weekend. On Saturday, we had the Rams and the Packers, and we had the, the Bills and the Ravens. And then Sunday, we had the Chiefs and the Browns and the Bucks and the Saints. I would like to start with – I just like to go in order. That's because of the OCD in me. But um, the first game of the weekend was the Packers and the Rams. The Packers do beat the Rams pretty soundly, 32-18 to 18 at Lambeau. And the – the first thing I actually want to do is kind of criticize the Packers in the way that they let the Rams hang around in this game for far too long. Right. I watched this game from beginning to end, and I could, I could tell you with confidence, Chris, that the Packers probably could have put up 50 points, and they didn't. Yeah, no, uh, I, I agree. Um, you know, the final score is two possessions, but it was consistently the Rams would, uh, would, would answer a score with a score of their own, be back to one possession game, and Rodgers – you know, couldn't just coast. It was like, okay, well, we want another score. We want that security. So um, that is kind of surprising. I, I mean, uh, we also know the Rams defense is kind of like the best part of the team, like the definitely yeah. the strongest part of the team. So, you know, credit to them as well. But uh, definitely the Packers, uh, you know, for, for all the praise they're getting for offense and, you know, oh, Rodgers is a magician right now. They looked good. Um, they're going to need to look better, I think, yeah. even though they won by two possessions. No, you're, you're definitely right about that. And 
one of the things that I think was kind of flew under the radar the whole entire week, which really flies under the radar with the Packers in general, because of, you know, Aaron Rodgers is a big mega star and like he, you know, he commands a lot of media attention, all that kind of stuff, not just him himself. I'm not saying he's a diva. It's just like, that's how the NFL media is. It's like, Oh my God, Aaron Rodgers took a crap. Like let's <laughs> cover that, you know, pretty much is what I'm saying. But like um, what I said last week in my, in my like preview for the matchups was the Rams are going to have a tough time defending the three headed monster of the Packers backfield. And they did, which the Packers ran for 188 yards and two touchdowns. But what I meant by three headed monster was where you got Aaron Jones, who not only can catch is the speed back and he hits the hole and he's gone. You know what I mean? Then you got Jamal Williams, who is as tough as anyone to tackle in the NFL. And he's a, a supreme pass catcher out of the backfield. And then you got six foot one, 250 pound AJ Dillon who could just run right at your face. And there's nothing that you could do about it. Three totally different style running back that I said that the Rams were going to have to try and cope with. And at the end, it was too much for them. You had uh, Jones ran for 99 and a touchdown. Williams added 65. Dylan had 27 as well in limited carries. They spread the ball out nicely. The, the touches actually were, were even for the most part. It was Jones had 14, Williams had 12, Dylan had six. So they kept it fresh. They ran the ball 36 times, which is very uncharacteristic of the Aaron Rodgers led Packers, where it's more just kind of like, hey, we're at the one yard line. Let's find Bobby Tanyan for a one yard touchdown. So um, I think that they switched up their game plan pretty well. They, didn't have to rely on Aaron, Aaron Rodgers the entire game. He threw for 296 and two touchdowns. Kind of really looked like he he wasn't really – I don't want to say he wasn't really trying, but there's there were just times where, like, the, the, the passing touchdown to Alan Lazard where he just flicked his wrist and it went, like, 49 yards in the air. <laughs> right. And I was just like, this man, this man just doesn't even try, like, it, it, it's it's remarkable to see. He really is a once a once in a generation talent, I do believe. But um, on the Rams side of the ball, I would like to say that I think they do have a bona fide stud running back in Cam Akers. Oh yeah, definitely. Like it took a few weeks into the season. Like I'm pretty sure he was he had like ten carries the entire season until like week eight, and then he just took off like gangbusters and. So that's a positive on that side. Um, I don't think Goff played bad in this game. I just think losing Cooper Cup was humongous for him. And also, they had no vertical. There was no vertical game to the Rams on Saturday. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't. Um, I don't criticize Jared Goff as much as a as much as I probably could. I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But. I probably disagree in the in in regards that he had like I mean it wasn't a horrible game he played he played fine yeah um for a number one overall pick you know first pick in the draft you would hope that he could do more than twenty one to twenty seven for one seventy four that's kind of been his thing um just you know uh, I think it's a, I think this year in the regular season he said he said he was um six point six yards for intended targets or intended. Uh, air yards on his throws uh, that's yeah that's, Sam that's not going to get territory right there it's not going to get the job done I mean it's been going down every year the accuracy is up uh and that's even after McVeigh called him out um for well, when you make short throws like that your 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 completion percentage is going to go up that's yeah 
Yeah, no, and um, but how is that? I mean, he hasn't had the luxury of a consistent run game like he did back in the girly MVP years. Now they right. have Acres, so once again he finds himself in a situation where he he has a run game he can rely on. There's a lot of good quarterbacks, like starter caliber quarterbacks in the NFL, who don't have or you know every other year it's like okay well who's going to be do we have that kind of a run game that we can rely on you know to consistently chew the clock and just you know get those tough yards and get first downs but he's got that now um cooper cup as much as they have a chemistry and and he's been able to rely on him as a good slot target um van jefferson was good this game um i liked actually this game um, as a rookie probably yeah no yeah um there's the other one i can't remember um Josh Reynolds. Josh Reynolds. I. I mean, obviously, it was. It, it was. It wasn't as much in terms of volume, but, and and he's not like. I. I don't. Rem- I don't remember that it was like any vertical routes or any, I. I can't actually remember if it was anything like you know over the top or if they even threw the ball, that far, um, but you know it, he's got options. He's got weapons. Um, one player being injured on their side of the ball in offense, I don't think really excuses this kind of an effort from Goff and even McVay was, was not exactly the most convincing in the post game talking about the future with Goff and just, uh, you know, his security as, as franchise quarterback, we, you know, we call him a franchise quarterback and he should be able to make these games more competitive. I think you're a hundred percent right with what you said, where it was like, you know, you, you, you kind of mended it together perfectly where it was like number one, overall pick plenty of weapons, Losing his probably top target shouldn't excuse the fact that you can't get it done. You know what I mean? Like they still had Robert Woods as well, which everyone forgets about because he was a ghost in this game because he was uh, shattered by Jair Alexander, yeah. who was who was rem- fantastic. He's a fantastic cornerback. So even then, they still had like you said, guys like Josh Reynolds, Ben Jefferson. You know what I mean? They have Tyler Higby and, and Gerald Everett as tight ends as well. There's plenty of weapons. And the Green Bay Packers defense isn't good enough to the point where you could say, oh, that Packers defense, just shut them down. They're very leaky, and they give up a lot of big plays. And I just think that – I just think McVay doesn't trust Jared Goff anymore right. to get it yeah. done with his arm. So I think this very lateral pass game was a result of him not trusting Goff and – it's really a shame to see because when they were having, you know, what, like you said, when they had Todd Gurley and they had the luxury to fall back on a run game, if the pass game wasn't really uh, working out so well, when they were throwing the ball vertically and everyone was healthy and everything like that, Goff threw for over like 4,500 yards and over 30 touchdowns. You know, he really showed why he could be a number one pick, but yeah, the trust is clearly gone between the two of them. I hope I, I still believe in Jared Goff as I would say a franchise quarterback. He could definitely start again next year for the Rams, and I wouldn't be mad about that. I would right. love to see an improvement. I'd love to see that relationship change between McVay and Goff because something's clearly clearly off there, and neither of them are going anywhere because McVay is one of the best head coaches in football, and Goff also has a bunch of money tied to him. So it's essentially a Philadelphia Eagles situation where it's like, well, we can't get rid of the quarterback because of the money that we owe him, so make it work. Right. No, I, I think you, you actually said it perfectly in, in that um, that he, he – I mean, we've seen him make good throws. We've seen him actually when – it might just be that he's handicapped in this offense um, by McVay, uh, you know, and, and that 
that's surprising considering the run game really hasn't started to click until, you know, the back end of the season. Yeah. Um, but the the stats don't really lie. He still threw for almost 4,000 yards this season, um, but it's safe. Uh, I, he, got, he got chewed out by his head coach after, uh, I think it was a Niners game uh, for ball security, and I, the offense has gone from, okay, he'll take a shot when he has to, to, oh, well, let's just dump it off and hope that we can get seven yards on third down you know, starting from the line of scrimmage. Like, I mean, good luck. I know it's kind of, you know, part of a lot of NFL offenses these days, but we're talking about the guy who was picked above all the other quarterbacks, right? So yeah. uh, let's let's see why he's, why he's that guy. You know, make, make him make the plays for you. It doesn't really matter who's out there. Can they catch a ball? Let him throw it to him. Yeah. I, I agree with that argument 100%. And like I said, I hope that the relationship – or the clear divide between the two guys can be mended in the off season, because I think you could agree with this too. When that Rams offense is right and everyone is clicking, it's, it's one of the most fun offenses to watch in football. You know, I, I, I love watching whenever they were on TV a couple of years ago when they made that Super Bowl run and stuff like that, it was so fun to watch them play. Yeah. So with their gadget plays and everything like that, their, their outside run blocking scheme, you know, runs and stuff like that. It was just really it, it was really fun to watch, but getting back more to the Packers side of the ball, I'd like to say that I, I feel like this win was more like on autopilot and I, I don't see, well, we'll talk about this in a little bit. I don't really see anyone beating the Packers. I don't see Tampa Bay beating the Packers. So I really think this is the representative of the NFC conference. Uh, I would like to see them, I'd like to see them pass the ball a little bit more to guys other than Devontae Adams. Like I'd love to see Robert Tunyon get a little bit more involved in the pass game because the, if you watch Packers games, the Packers rely so much on outside targets. They don't really utilize the slot and they don't really utilize the middle of the field. And it's a shame because you have good, you have good guys that can go over the middle of the field. They have Tunyon. Like I said, you could move Demonte Adams is so versatile that you can move him into the slot. If you want utilize a little bit more of the middle of the field and get, get deep balls down the middle of the field. That's what I'd really like to see in the next game in the NFC championship game, but congratulations to the Packers. They're clearly the best team. I feel like in the NFC. And I think that there was a little uncertainty going into the playoffs with the Packers where it was like, eh, you don't really know what you're going to get, but I think that Aaron Rodgers is on a mission this year. I think drafting Jordan Love lit a fire under his ass that we've never seen before. And I really don't see them losing in the NFC Championship game. Yeah, and uh, I guess, yeah, NFC Championship game, I guess you said, like you said, we'll get to it, um, I guess, later. Yeah. I don't know how, how this works. I usually just rely on you for that. I, um, I usually just do it uh, after I go over the divisional games, I'll go to the championship preview right. pretty much. Um, and – just, uh, well, with this game, I mean, you were talking about the Rams, how fun their offense is, and you want to see the Packers throw to more people than just Devontae Adams. Um, that was really, like, one of the things that was so confusing to me was that, I mean, the Rams are a good defensive team, and there was a lot of talk about Ramsey versus Adams, and I saw them dropping into zone, like, way, like, way more than I thought. I mean, this is Adams, excuse me, uh, Ramsey's uh, completion percentage against him, you know, this season is like, is the reason he made the Pro Bowl. He only has one interception this season. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, they, they, 
I don't really know how the completion to uh, to attempts in his direction work, works, but it says he's like 50%, you know, uh, of completions that go his way. Oh, so wow. that's, I mean, that's really good. So Devontae Adams is on another level right now, but you like the thought of locking him up or, or taking him out of the game as much as you can. You can't do it consistently all game, you know, give him some help, but um Ramsey was just dropping him back into zone. It seemed like it was an afterthought. Rodgers was able to like roll out, find spots in the coverage, just enough time, found Adams nine, you know, the overall numbers is nine catches, 66 yards and a touchdown. So his long catch, I think of like what, 10 yards. It wasn't like it was, you know, he, he didn't burn anybody, but yeah, the space is there. And Rogers, if you read zone coverage, he's going to find somebody. It, it's funny because for Devonte Adams, 66 yards and the one the one touchdown was a one yard touchdown right. pass and he also ran across the entire formation so <laughs> Ramsey kind of got lost like in the shuffle so it was really an easy pass so if you really take out the t- the one yard touchdown you know 66 receiving yards to a guy that was borderline unstoppable all season long like that's a win right there you should be able to capitalize yeah. off something like that and the Rams just came out flat Aaron Donald was taken out of the equation as well for the he most part, he wasn't 100%, right? Yeah, he wasn't 100%, and he was also double-teamed most of the time, too. So, like, really, the Rams just kind of came out, and it kind of looked like they were already defeated by the time they came out there. Like, the weather shouldn't have been an excuse. It wasn't snowing. It wasn't windy. It was relatively warm for Green Bay at this time of the season. I think it was, like, 36 degrees. Like, should have been able to put together a little bit of a better game plan. I think that just comes down to um, preparation and – they, they didn't prepare well enough, obviously. Like, I mean, it's tough to prepare for Aaron Rodgers, but, right, you know, you knew what you were getting into. So, Well, my only other comment on that would be that you've been saying all season long on this show, for those who've been listening, that they need to feed Aaron Jones. So I just took it as feed the run game. They fed the run game, and you see, if you can't game plan for Rodgers, you can't game plan for Adams – Good luck dealing with, I think it was a combined, what, 27 carries or, or something from this run game? No, way more. It's like no, I think you're 32 right. carries. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, good luck. You can't, you can't game plan for Rodgers, uh, Tunyon, Adams, whatever, whatever excuse you want to make. The run game is just as potent. So, And that's a good Rams defense, you know? So I, 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 don't, know, uh, I, I don't know if there's any good excuses, but um, – yeah. I did see a stat actually. Um, the, the last thing I'll say about this, and we can move on to the next game after that, was the Rams didn't give up more than I think it was like 134 yards on the ground in any game oh, this wow. season, and they also didn't give up more than 278 passing yards a game this season. And Rodgers had 296, and the run game had 188. So right then and there, you know, you best them at their best part of their game, they're gonna lose. Yeah, no, couldn't have uh, – and it was it was on display, like, from the first quarter. From the jump. Yeah, yeah, it was just – I'm very surprised at, at the Rams. And uh, like, like, like I said in the beginning, Packers, it was the most convincing show on offense, but they got the job done. Um, we'll see what happens. 100%. Moving on to the, the later game that was on Saturday. This was the one out of all four games this weekend that I was looking forward to the most. And the scoreline looks disappointing, but it's only disappointing if you really watch the game. The first half was kind of boring, but the second half was was pretty action-packed. The Bills did beat the Ram the Rams. Well, the Bills did beat the Ravens, uh, seventeen to three. This was an honestly, 
an unexpected defensive battle on one side of the ball. I didn't think the Bills defense was going to play as well as they did. And shout out, yes, shout out Leslie Frazier because he 100% deserves a shout out as the defensive coordinator for the Bills. He had a immaculate game plan against the Ravens this weekend. Uh, my only, uh, my only big, uh, I won't even say it's a shout out because, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely like, uh, your trademark there. It's my thing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, my only, my only guy that I singled out was Tremaine Edmonds. Oh my God. I mean, I knew he was good, but that game, I just saw the guy all over the place. I was really impressed with him. Um, you want to extend to the defensive coordinator. All right. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, Leslie Frazier's kind of flown under the radar this season because I, I thought of the Bills as kind of like an anomaly the last like couple of years because it's it's like, you know, Josh Allen's rookie year, like Bills are okay, great defense, no offense. Like last year, Bills are pretty good on defense. And it's like, well, Bills are pretty good on offense too. And then it was like this year, it's like, wow, the Bills defense is shit. And then it's like, <laughs> and it's like, wow, the Bills offense is really good. So they've kind of like regressed in one area. I feel like they can't have like an even balance. It's like one side is spectacular and one side isn't really that great. But essentially they really just got off to a bad first half of the season and their, their second half defense has played really, really well. And I think Leslie Frazier made great adjustments throughout the season and he maximized his players that he had because they're very undersized. They don't have any humongous guys on the defensive line. They, they have, I, I think it's, you got Jerry Hughes, Vernon Butler, Ed Oliver, and I think like Mario Addison, who everyone Mario is just, Addison, yeah. yeah, everyone is like undersized. Then you have, you know, young linebackers in, you know, you have Trent, well, Trent Murphy isn't really that young. Then you have Tremaine Edmonds, you have Matt Milano. Everyone's pretty much undersized on that defense. So they they did what they were supposed to do in this game against the Ravens. They won the battle in the trenches, like, which was very shocking in my opinion, because I thought that it was going to be, you know, Levi Wallace and Teron Johnson and Tredavious white shutting down the passing game. And then the bills just get lit up on the running game. Like I, I thought that there was going to be no shot that they stopped Lamar Jackson. I think before Lamar Jackson, unfortunately left the game with a concussion, I think he only had about 29 rushing yards or something like that. And considering, I, I mean, I could be way off, but I remember seeing at one point. 34. 34. Okay. Well, I wasn't yeah. that far off. Oh, very but, good, um, yeah. but yeah, like they held him to under, <laughs> basically holding him to under a hundred rushing yards nowadays is a win in itself, but holding oh, him to no, 34. No um, essentially, really the only thing that was kind of leaky with the Bills defense was uh, Marquise Hollywood Brown got open quite often, but I will contribute that to the Ravens pass protecting really well and just him kind of running all over. Like, I feel like, I feel like the guy, I'm not a big fan of Marquise Brown. I feel like the guy just goes out there and they either tell him to run deep or just run around in circles until you get open. Yeah. And, and I think two of those completions from Tyler Huntley anyway. So, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Credit Marquise Brown on that one. Yeah, so like I literally, I, I when they track him, like when he makes a nice catch, I feel like he's running circles. Like I, I never see him run an actual route. It's either <laughs> it, it's like a crossing route, or it's deep, or it's just circle, circle, circle. Hey, I'm open. Throw me the ball. But um, offensively, the Bills struggled, but everyone struggles against the Ravens' defense. So I, I don't even think there is 
like an alarming factor on that side of the ball. Like Josh Allen was good enough to get the win. You know what I mean? And that's all that they needed because as long as they played good defense, they were going to win. Cause Josh Allen, I, I do think Josh Allen is that dude. Like everything that I said about him at the beginning of this year, like I'll be the first to admit, I was not only was I wrong, I was like in another like nebulous. I was not even close. Oh yeah. Me too. Like, I mean, I feel like everyone was, but I, I was especially really critical of Josh Allen. Also, um, saying really horrible things about him. Like I still thought that Sam Darnold was better than him and all that kind of stuff. So he is, that's <laughs> no, he's not, but, <laughs> <laughs> but Sammy, we love you. Well, of course I do have to say one thing that I, I am a little worried about moving forward is that Brian Dable and the bills do not know how to run the football at all. Yeah. Like, like don't even run. I think it was at one point where we were in like quarter number two, and like a good chunk into quarter number two, and the Bills didn't even attempt or have a running attempt yet. I didn't notice that. Um, I mean, you, we we knew that the uh, with, with the conditions they were showing the wind. They kept talking about the wind, the wind, the wind. Uh, I guess that explains you know the emphasis on the run, especially for Buffalo. I mean, excuse me for uh, for uh, Baltimore. Um, there was uh, I noticed uh, like a little bit. I guess because of the wind and because maybe they just game planned it very well, the bills were ready for all those read option RPO plays that, you know, make the Ravens so dangerous when they run the ball. Um, and yet they kept going for it. I mean, th- those attempts from, from Jackson, a lot of them came in that first half and uh, he got, he couldn't get outside contain. He was like met at the line, you know, around the line of scrimmage, like every time it was very surprised. He kept going right back to it. Um, he opened it up towards the end of the half and started throwing you saw one pass that was like, I think it was maybe like a 20 yard or something. You saw it traveling in the air. It was wobbling so much because of the mm-hmm. wind, yeah. but the intermediate short game, uh, I, they didn't really go to it as much as they, as they probably could have. And then on the other side, it's like the bills, they couldn't run the ball at all. So they were trying that as you know, and pretty unsuccessful for the first half for, yeah. for the most part. So if you missed the first half, um, you know, you actually didn't miss much. Yeah, seriously. It was, it, it was more, it really wasn't more of a, a defensive battle in the first half. It was more of kind of like a battling the wind, I would yeah, say. Yeah, definitely. But I think you nailed it on the head when you initially said that your dude for the game was Tremaine Edmonds, because oh. every point that you just said really goes back to Tremaine Edmonds, because every time that the Bills were able to hold Lamar Jackson in contain, who was on the end of that play? It was Tremaine Edmonds. Every time they tried to go to a short pass to the tight end, Mark Andrews, who was covering Mark Andrews? It was Tremaine Edmonds. So like, Oh, Matt Milano too. Great. I mean, yeah, they, Milano they was an ex- Milano's actually an exceptional cover linebacker. He can't tackle. He cannot blitz, but he is fantastic in coverage. Yeah, no, they, um, they, they definitely – I don't know if that's game plan or whatever, but they came out uh, ready for what the Ravens had for them. You know, we want to blame it on the weather, whatever. Bills look prepared on defense. Yeah, 100%. One last thing I really want to say about this is um, towards the end of the game when Lamar Jackson did go down with that concussion, um, that was unfortunate. I never wanted to see – even though the game was kind of out of reach, I would say, for Baltimore at that point – you still never want to see a great battle of like two young guys. Like we never really saw a battle between them with like meaning. Now there'll be that asterisk, that asterisk. Um, I can't say that word at all. Actually, I, <laughs> that was my best attempt, but you know what I was meaning. Um, next to that game where it was like, oh, well, Lamar Jackson played, you know, the whole game. So let's run it back again. Like, I feel like, 
I feel like Josh Allen won't be satisfied with that like moral victory over Lamar Jackson. So like, hopefully it'll be a continuous battle over the next decade, hopefully. But um, I do think Josh Allen gets the nod as the better quarterback, not only this season going forward. I think that we've seen a, a massive regression from Lamar Jackson throwing the football this season. Uh, I might be willing to attribute that to just some like, you know, uh, their, their best weapons offensively catching the ball are uh, Andrews and, and Brown. So, and, and Marquise Brown, like you said, hasn't really made the full jump. Like a mm-hmm. lot of people were expecting him to. Um, I mean, Dobbins had three catches, 51 yards. So, and, and Willie Sneed five catches. I think he actually paces the entire wide receiver core in terms of like receptions. Oof, wow. So, you, I mean, I, I, I'm critical of Jackson because of, I think, the read option thing. I, I mean, listen, it's uh, – and not to talk about Chiefs, but the same thing with Mahomes. If you're going to have your guy running out there, uh, he's going to get clobbered. And, you know, not to prepare for concussions, you don't want to see anyone get hurt, but it happens. It's part of the game. And mm-hmm. uh, he's got arm talent. He actually can make some nice throws. So you wouldn't mind him just being able to actually sit there in the pocket or roll out and, and actually make completions. But – um, I think it's actually a testament to just how, you know, underdeveloped or underutilized the, the wide receiver core is. That's a hundred percent a factor in it too. I mean, if you look at, obviously we can only, we can only analyze what we're given. So what we're right. given is Lamar Jackson isn't the best passer and Josh Allen is a fantastic passer. But, you know, if you really look at it, it's like, oh, well, we'll look at the weapons Josh Allen has, but like he you know, he does make the throws, you know, his yeah. completion percentage jumped up from 50 per, 54%, which is horrendous by the way, in his <laughs> first two seasons to almost 70% this season. So he's made the necessary adjustments. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't hurt to have Stephon Diggs. That is true as well. But um, they, I, I think it comes down to coaching and weapons really for Josh Allen, where it's like Dable kind of figured like, all right, instead of making him throw the ball 940 yards downfield, like he probably can, yeah. You know, let's make short to intermediate passes and go deep when we have to. You know what I mean? And I feel like with Lamar Jackson, it's kind of just like it, it he he's not a good pocket passer and I don't really care what weapons you could put around him. This was a known thing for a long time and even in college that like, yeah, if you get him on the bootleg outside yeah. of the pocket, he'll make every throw. That's abundantly clear because we saw it last year when he won the MVP where he was making, he was throwing the ball 60 yards downfield on the run, you know, outside the pocket. If you keep him, if you contain him inside the pocket and make him throw from inside the pocket, he's not good. He, he's not good at all. Yeah. And he's quick to scramble too. Um, But I, you know, I, I know that you're, you're a hundred percent right, especially with the rollout throws. Um, But he did win an MVP last year. Uh, (laughs) I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the the battle between Allen and, and Jackson's entirely decided. And no, 100% um, not. And I would love to see them keep playing, especially in important games. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to put an asterisk next to this game unless they just didn't watch the game because <laughs> that game was, I mean, the drive that decided it was um, Buffalo had a touchdown from Allen uh, in the third quarter. And then they had a touchdown pass from Lamar Jackson that went, you know, <laughs> hundred percent yards. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in, in that, if you, want to say the first half is a wash and then everything after that and before the injury is what it is and it comes down to a drive i mean that's that's the nfl playoffs so those those two drives 
who won, I guess Allen wins round one. I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be putting an asterisk next to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I just say that really for the people that are Lamar Jackson lovers to the point yeah. where it's like, no, don't get me wrong. I do love Lamar Jackson. I think, let me be clear with this statement as a football player. I think he's elite as a quarterback. I don't think he's elite at all. I think he is, if I'm, if I'm being crass and I'm saying wild statements and I've said this throughout the entire season, if we're talking about being a pure quarterback, Lamar Jackson's in the bottom, the bottom 15 of the league. Ouch. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm just being honest. If we're talking about pure passing ability, and this isn't even coming about with weapons. There are just so many times that you see Lamar Jackson throw no, the ball wide, throw the ball into the ground, overthrow people. doesn't matter who you have. He could have Stefan Diggs. If you overthrow Stefan Diggs every time, how are you using him? You know what I mean? Like, that's where I think Greg Roman and company really need to reanalyze their offensive game plan next year and really get Lamar Jackson back to what he was doing best in his MVP season. We didn't see – any of that really this yeah. year no, i mean I granted know. yes he still did rush for over a thousand yards but the first half of the season i don't even think he had 400 rushing yards yeah it took, no, until, I mean, the, it took until the second half of the season for them to be like oh yeah let's make him run the ball more often you know what i mean like the last i think five or six games he ran for like over 100 yards every time that's what you need to do to get lamar jackson to win you football games and there's nothing wrong with that at all right. i you know what I mean? If that's how you win football games, that's how you win Super Bowls. At the end of the day, that's the name of the game is winning. doesn't matter oh, yeah. how you do it. You're, you're, I mean, you're 100% right. I can't, I can't even pretend like, you know, earlier I wasn't giving flack to golf about, you know, oh, it doesn't matter what your weapons are, who's on the field or whatever. You got to make the throws. And then, you know, I turn around and say, hey, Lamar Jackson can get a little bit more out of Hollywood Brown. <laughs> but, and it, so if you're going to be fairly critical about him, I mean, that, that is fine too. And uh, all this talk about, you know, the narrative, the narrative, he can't win you a football game in, in the playoffs. That, That's BS, uh, by the way. Of course you could do that. Well, record as a starter is 30 and seven uh, in the regular season. Obviously, playoff success isn't there yet. Um, he was a rookie in 2018. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this team, I mean, if all things like remain equal, they're going to be around in the playoff picture going forward. So all this talk, I mean, Schefter made a big deal about it. Like, oh, well, there goes the narrative. He can't win a playoff game. It's like, no, he actually still hasn't proven that he can win a playoff game on his own, but that doesn't make it a narrative. It means that he's a third year player who hasn't found success, you know, in, in the playoffs yet. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that it's a narrative or that anyone's like legitimately starting to think, Oh, Lamar Jackson, that guy can't win you a game uh, in January. It's like, no, the guy's a proven winner. He's one MVP. The record speaks for itself. You know, uh, the jump from year two to year three hasn't been exactly what people were expecting, but if we give him a chance, like we afford all of our franchise quarterbacks, mm-hmm. then you know, except for Sam Darnold, then he, um, I really think that he can prove people wrong. But uh, let's not start going and, and writing like these these hit pieces on him and start making this like a big debate on whether he can win you a game. Like, stop. No, that's, he, that's re- he's a good player. Yeah, he's gonna keep being a good player for. I mean, he's, he's in the beginning of his prime. Exactly. He might not even have scratched the surface of his prime yet, which is even scarier. But he's still so young that he's still moldable. If you get someone like, you know, if he gets maybe a little bit more weight on him, 
and you get someone that could really work with him on his throwing mechanics and everything like that, maybe he could be a dual threat where he could be a pocket passer and he could run and he could throw on the run and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? There's just so many things that they could do for this guy that I feel like they haven't done yet where the Ravens are kind of like, like last year, they went 14 and two and lost in their first playoff game. Like, I feel like the Ravens going into this year, were like, yeah, whatever we did last year, let's do more of that. No, that you didn't win the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? You're not the Kansas City Chiefs where it's like, all right, let's throw the ball 45 times and then run it five times. And you know what? Hey, we win like that. You yeah. need to adapt and you need to change. And I feel like if, if I'm being, I was critical of Lamar Jackson and I'll also, you know, make a point for him. They've let him down this season. Like you said, oh, for this, sure. this was supposed to be a massive jump. The coaching staff needs to do a better job of not only surrounding Lamar Jackson with what he needs to be successful, but also to have a game plan where he could be successful as well. Yeah. So I think, I think going into year four, this is really like the, like, I mean, year one was what it was. I mean, he didn't really play that much year two. He won the MVP year three. He looked like a average quarterback. So this is really the year where it's like, all right, Lamar, what are you? Yeah. And I mean, we're expecting a jump from year two to year three, year two, he wins an MVP. So not a jump in terms of success because obviously you, you expect regression. You know that the chances of people winning back-to-back MVPs is, is very, you know, unlikely. Yeah. But just in terms of the fact that he went from this guy's the league MVP to, oh, now we're asking questions about his ability. It's like that to me sounds like it falls on, like you said, the coaching staff falls on like just the way the team's set up. Like this is a guy who's proven he can succeed in this league and he can win you a lot of football games. Yeah. People see him coming now, but there's no reason that he should, that people should be genuinely questioning. Well, maybe this guy's not who we thought he was. He won MVP in the league. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. I think that's a perfect note to leave that game on, but right. basically for the bills moving on to the AFC championship game is humongous. You know, the bills mafia is like the greatest fan base in football. I feel like I just love every, every piece of news that comes out of like, that fan base i'm always i'm always for it like it's so weird too as a like diehard jet fan you would think that i hate the bills but like i honestly love the bills probably like if i had to choose a second favorite football team which i never would it would probably be the bills just because of their fan base and like how passionate they are i really admire like fan base passion and stuff like that but moving on to the first game of today which is sunday well, now it's not Sunday because it's 1.53 in the morning. So it's Monday. So yesterday's first Still game. Still going strong, baby. You already know how we do around here. Everything is late night around here. But um, the Chiefs did survive against the Cleveland Browns 22-17. to 17. And I'm not going to lie. If, if you're the Browns, man, like, I am, I am livid with the way that this season ended because – you know, you make it this far, you basically kick the crap out of the Pittsburgh Steelers, your biggest rival last, last week. You hold Patrick Mahomes to, I don't really know, was it 22 points and then he left? Uh, no, I think it was 19. Okay, so you hold, them, you hold Patrick Mahomes through basically three quarters to 19 points. Yeah. And you can't get it done on offense. And then Mahomes is basically out for the entire fourth quarter. Chad Henney, who I I can't remember the last time I saw him throw like a pass that wasn't in a garbage time week 17 game, <laughs> you know, like, <clears throat> excuse me, like 
how do you not get it done? I, that really bothers me. And it, it bothers me. It bothers me as a football fan, because I feel like this might've been the one year in like this chief's quote unquote dynasty where we could have seen two different teams in the AFC fight to go to the Super Bowl before the Chiefs come back around. They're like, all right, well, we know what we did start wrong last year. So we're just going to start beating the crap out of everyone. <laughs> like this, this was basically, I feel like, well, you know, now with the Bills being so prominent in the AFC, that might change too. But like, and especially as it was the Browns, man. Like I, I, I dig on Baker Mayfield a lot and, and, and the Browns, everything like that. I genuinely wanted to see the Browns win just for the sake of like 2020 was crazy. The NFL season was crazy. What would be crazier than the Browns playing in the AFC championship game? Oh, and what would be crazier for that fan base? I mean, they haven't seen that, and I don't think, even know. Think I'm about that really... for a second. The Bills and the Browns in the AFC championship game, two franchises that have basically had no playoff success in the past 30 years, basically. Like, <laughs> that would just be hilarious. But yeah, the Browns missed a monumental chance. And all these I, I follow because we did have Chris McNeil on the show a couple months ago when the Browns, I think, were like – like five and one or five and two or whatever. Yeah. And and one, I think, yeah. And, you know, I was seeing all these Cleveland Brown fans on Twitter, like, Oh, great season. Everything like that. I'm, I pardon my French. I'm fucking pissed. If I'm a Browns fan that I could not get this win. Well, and if you want to start all the way at the end there with Henny, I mean, I, I coined it as it happened. I was like, that's a punt reception. I mean, that he threw that That was ball. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just – it was horrible. That's why I didn't like – but, I mean, they basically – I don't even know if it was third down, but they threw the ball into the end zone, and Carl Joseph was waiting under it like a punt, like they said. I mean, High there was – High ball to center field. And they're in a position now where they're – or close to midfield they just have to kill some clock get into field goal range and then the browns are left with you know a following drive less time on the clock and they have to get a touchdown two point and a two-point conversion instead i mean i don't know if it was reed who just gave him the keys and said go ahead and like launch a deep ball if you feel it but i was like sitting there screaming at the tv like what the hell was that and then to come out i mean on top of that to come out now you've been gifted uh you've been gifted a drive starting at the at the 20 um or 25? How does it work after 25? After, uh, after an interception? I'm pretty sure. I know on punts, it's still the 20, right? I think that's only on punts, it's the 20. You know, you might be right, actually. It might, I it have might no be the idea. If, yeah. Um, but that drive, I mean, they start by losing a timeout. They try a run to the outside, which all game has been covered up by the Chiefs. All the runs that were that looked like they were successful, especially the two by Chubb on the first touchdown drive, mm-hmm. both up the middle, just like gaping holes up the middle, gaping holes up the middle. Okay, Chris, uh, settle down it. now. <laughs> you, you laughed, okay. <laughs> uh, and then follow that with an attempt at a screen to Chubb, and then the last play is a dump off to hu- to Hunt for two yards. That's your. You just got a gift interception with plenty of time and on the clock to work, out. and those are your three plays. If I'm, if I'm the Browns, now listen, I am purely a Monday morning quarterback. I sit oh, on my couch. And, uh, you know what I mean? But if I'm the Browns, all the momentum is on my side, even though I'm losing. I just got to, like you said, a gift interception. I'm taking a freaking deep shot, man. I'm letting Baker throw that ball as far as he possibly can, because you know what? What's the, like a big momentum shift like that? Just hit him where it hurts. 
You know what I mean? Get a one play scoring driver. You get a 50 yard play on the, like, I feel like the Browns were just kind of like, okay, like, yeah. The momentum was with the Browns after that too. That's what I'm saying. That's where it was like, dude, like you come out, like the, the defense is reeling. It's like, oh shit. Like Mahomes isn't playing like, you know, we we actually have to play defense now where it's like we can't count on like at least three points on every single drive, yeah. you know, like we actually have to play now. Like, so they're a little nervous. And then, you know, you come out with maybe like a, like a um, Donovan Peoples-Jones 50-yard deep ball, you know, or something like that. The Browns just, it just wasn't Anything. there. And another, there's two things that really bothered me about the Browns game plan was, well, well this wasn't really the game plan, was Rashad Higgins, who was basically their best receiver all game, um, getting that catch towards the end of the first half and extending it and fumbling it through, like not even like, of course it's like the Browns luck where it's like any other team yeah. besides for the Jets, it probably would have went out of bounds at like the two yard line, but takes a wicked bounce, line, but... <laughs> takes a wicked bounce and goes out of bounds for a touchback. Like that was a killer right then and there because also the chiefs did come down and kick a field goal right there too, at the end of the half. Yeah. So big points. And another thing too was, Kevin Stefanski and company, why in God's name did Kareem Hunt only get seven touches in this game? That, Kareem Hunt, in the, seven, in the seven touches that he got, he looked borderline unstoppable. I know. He was a man on a mission against He was the, literally, like he said that he was angry. Why wouldn't you want to play? Why wouldn't you want to play a guy that literally said, this is personal for me? And a guy like Kareem Hunt that runs angry all the time and just seems to bowling ball off of other people, like, what? Like why I I don't I don't get that I don't get giving him six carries and the the one thing that killed me the most what I told my dad Nick Chubb one of the most underrated running backs in football I think like wholeheartedly I think that when you talk about top top five top eight like he always flies under the radar as someone that you'll never think of as like a top five running back but in his three years in the league he definitely has been like one of the top guys. No doubt. He cannot catch the football to save his life. Well, that's the interesting part about that screen too. But I, yeah, no. He's, but what uh, I'm saying is I'm pretty sure that he dropped like three or four passes today. That's what you brought Kareem Hunt in for. And that's what you paid him for. Why is he not taking those screens? Why is he not running buck wild in the open field? Like I, this, this is what, what just like fails me. Like, I, like it dumbfounds me where I'm just like, why why? Like, I don't get yeah, it. That's the play calling this entire game is I mean, you're sitting there watching it and you're just waiting for the Browns. I mean, especially like if you're, if you have confidence to go for it, I think on that, uh, I think it might've been the drive before or no, the drive where they got the last touchdown. I think they went for it on fourth down twice. Yeah. So obviously they're confident in their offense being able to on their side of the field, their confidence in their off and confident in their offense to get those fourth down conversions and confident that if Henny gets the ball back because they don't convert, he's not even going to get a first down. Cause that's how they went into that last drive. Like, Oh, uh, we have a timeout in the two minute warning. At least uh, we'll get, we'll get the ball back. So the play calling to me is like, what, the, what the hell is that? I, it's, it's weak. It's, it's uninspiring. It, they, they, are within five points of beating the, the reigning Super Bowl champions. And yeah. that was, it was pathetic. It, it really was because you leave it all out on the field. Like no one, basically, this was a perfect scenario where the Browns could have upset the Chiefs, where it was like, no one expects us to win. No one expect us, expects us to go into Arrowhead Stadium. Like you said, the reigning Super Bowl champions and win. 
and they had every opportunity and then some to win. And they came out with a pathetic game plan. I, I really don't think Baker Mayfield played a bad game. I really no. I wouldn't because because the one thing that the Chiefs defense did and they did really well was they took Jarvis Landry out of the equation. Yeah, he had seven catches, but that seven catches only equated to twenty yards. Like Never first off, I don't first before. off, I don't even know how that happens. How do you catch a ball seven times and you run twenty yards? But um they and he did a good job going through his progressions and finding other players and stuff like that. So I can't pin I can't even pin it on him. Like nope. there's no one to pin this on, honestly, other than the coaching staff. Again, just like with the Ravens. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this one was more like see, like that game was pretty much out of reach by the fourth quarter. Like this That's game. True. Like this game was like that. Like you really didn't know who was going to win. Like I, I was a little concerned for the Chiefs. I was like, oh, you know, the Browns. After that hail mary uh, uh, interception there for Chad Henney, I was like, I, I don't know. I think the Browns might come down and score. And then, like you said, pathetic play calling, just uninspired. Like if you're Kevin Stefanski, like that, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, yeah, and to, to the extent that we're even that we're even considered uh, Monday morning quarterbacks, those guys get paid for the X's and O's. So I expect them to be able to, with multiple chances, score a touchdown at the end. There, I, I mean. I, I would like an expl- an explanation from Kevin Stefanski on why he didn't play Kareem Hunt more. Yeah, that's that's what I want to going into tomorrow, and I start reading up on reports and everything like that. Unless it was an injury thing, then that's inexcusable. I mean, look, I'm not saying he owes anybody uh, an excuse or, or, or an explanation, but uh, this is the closest the Browns have come to you know any kind Being of success anything, in a yeah. long time, and this has got to be a punch in the gut for them. I mean especially after beating the Steelers, like you said, in that fashion. 100%. And moving more towards next week and for the Chiefs side, uh, anyone who didn't watch the game, Patrick Mahomes did go down with a concussion. That, that was a really scary sight, honestly, because, yeah. you know, he, he was slow to get up at first, and then once he got up, he was jelly-legged from the beginning. And, it was, and then when they panned in on his face and you saw it, like his eyes, he had very glassy, very thousand-yard stare. <coughs> you knew that it was a concussion. Yeah. And that worries me going forward because if he can't play next week, I I don't think the Chiefs have a shot of beating the Bills. If Henny's one if Henny's one brilliant moment was going to be a 14-yard uh, run or, or 13 and a half yard run or whatever it was on, He shot uh, his load in 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 one in one play. <laughs> and you think that my thing about uh up the middle gaping holes was bad? You're just you're just going to leave it out there. That was just, that was just blatant right there. Right I, through I, the innuendo. <laughs> but yeah, how do you beat the Bills with Chad Henny? I mean, listen, if any team's going to do it, you could put a second string quarterback with this Chiefs offense and say, "Hey, Give it your best shot, you know. Pretty sure you could put um, Ethan Musell back there and Andy Reid will get him a good game plan. Hey, let's not talk about Ethan like that. Shout out, Ethan. You're the best, man. I hope Ethan is surprised by this, by the way, hearing your hearing our voices together on I'm this podcast. By, this, by the way. I am not. I knew that this was going to happen at one point. But before we, before we get into the nostalgic factor of, of this actually happening right now, um, yeah, we'll get into that in a, in a little bit. There's one other game to talk about before we get into the the like quick previews for next week. Obviously, they're going to be quick because we have no idea about injury reports, nothing. This is literally just hours after the games uh, ended. So you heard it here, folks, first. Okay, well, you're going to hear it Monday morning, so you might hear the reports before you hear us, but just take our word <laughs> for it. Um, 
Moving on to the last game, <clears throat> you want to talk about nostalgia. Talk about the Buccaneers beating the New Orleans Saints 30-20 to 20 between the two oldest – I think it was like the oldest combination of ages like in NFL history for a playoff game. The two quarterbacks combined for 85 years old. Yeah, we'll always find stats like that. We, you know, we love making up statistics in the NFL. It's, it's so true. It really is. Um, but um, the first thing I want to say, which I think you could agree with me too, this is before we even talk about the game. If this is Drew Brees' swan song, like, I, I know that not a lot of people, like, love Drew Brees or, like, oh, yeah, he's a check down machine. That's not necessarily true. That has been true the last maybe three or four years because he's, like, 120 years old. But, um, you know, we grew up – Chris, you could agree with this, and I'm basically just talking to you right now – is we grew up with Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, you know, Philip Rivers – Drew Brees, you know, I'm definitely missing a ton of guys. You know what I'm saying? Tom Brady, you know, we, 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 Chad Pennington. Of course, yes, Chad, <laughs> Vinny Testaverde. No, I'm just kidding. But um, we grew up in an era where it was like, you know, when we were younger, it was like, wow, we're going to be able to see these guys forever, you know? And like, obviously, Peyton kind of started the trend and then Eli Manning and most likely Philip Rivers this year most likely Drew Brees. You know what I'm saying? We're getting to that point. Chris, we're, we're getting to that point where like the, the first generation of quarterbacks that we grew up with is, is like dying off. And it's, it's a little upsetting. See, that's why like watching this game, I was, I was more sad than anything because, you know, watching Drew Brees, like, you know, get picked off and stuff. A couple of those interceptions weren't his fault, but seeing him basically be really a shell of what he was even last year, or two years ago, it was yeah. a little upsetting to see because we know what Drew Brees is capable of, you know, and it's just like, it's like uh, that, that kind of sucked to see. But on, on the other end of the spectrum, to see the fact that Tom Brady is 43 years old and he hasn't lost any zip on his ball, he hasn't lost really any accuracy. I think it's just a testament to the fact that Tom Brady le- legitimately is a football machine and is the greatest quarterback, not only in our generation, that I think ever, 100%. Like, it's going to take a lot to stump him or yeah. pass him. Stump? Is that a word? No, you, that, that, that? no you're, you're right on that. Stump, okay. yeah. Stump Brady? I don't know. Okay, yeah. never mind. <laughs> it's going to take a lot to pass Brady yeah. in terms of just greatness. You know, If you could do it with numbers, you're not going to do it with rings. If you could do it with rings... You're not going to do the numbers. You, yeah. I don't know how you're going to do it with rings, but you know, yeah, good luck. <laughs> but uh, yeah, essentially what I'm just trying to say is this was more of a nostalgic game for me. And next week will be nostalgic too, because you got Aaron Rodgers, who's I think 37 turning 38. And then you get Tom Brady, who's 43. You know what I'm saying? This might be the last time we ever see them in a game of this magnitude play. And I think, Instead of for the casual fans like us, where we're hopeless Jets and Giants fans who have no ties to this game whatsoever, as just NFL fans, I think we just need to stop worrying about Tom Brady's completion percentage or that he's a check down machine or Aaron Rodgers being a stat patter. We just need to appreciate what is it in front of us while it is before it's gone, you know? Well said. Well said. I agree yeah. with that. But getting into the actual game aspect of it, um, is it me or was it kind of like a tale of two halves where it was like all saints pretty much first half and then just all Buccaneers second half? Well, um, yeah. And, uh, I think you had mentioned it before, before, um, I think you texted me before that, uh, 
it was definitely more defensive than I guess I we know they're two good defenses, but all the talk was about the quarterbacks and mm-hmm. rightfully so. All yeah. the talk was about the offense and how you're gonna, you know, deal with Gronk and, and Evans at the red zone. How are you gonna deal with uh with Ronald Jones and well actually the Saints are like one of the top rushing defense in the league, but Ronald Jones looked really good. Um, you know, there and then Saints on the other side, you have Mike Thomas. You have Alvin Kamara, who's just, I mean, you want to talk about a machine. That guy's a machine. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they, both offenses came out really flat, especially, like, early on. Um, I thought I thought Brady more than Breeze. Breeze wasn't even throwing that much, especially not, like, deep completions or, or even attempting anything over five yards. But yeah, Brady, for what it's worth, I mean, he was missing a lot of passes. I don't mean missing in terms of, like, again, Monday morning quarterback, but hmm. uh, just – compared to some of his really good games this year, it looked like he just wasn't finding guys, you know, with the same kind of regularity. Like, um, I know uh, this is later on in the game, but that catch by Tyler Johnson, that was like a huge, yeah, that was a catch by the way. What an amazing catch, but it's like Brady missed that throw. It looked like Uh, you need Tyler Johnson to, to make up for that pair to make the catch of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, he missed uh, Gronk in the end zone. Not that it was a good ball by Brady, but Gronk at this point, even if it couldn't have been Gronk at this point in his career, needs the ball to be on him. He's not going to go out and, and lay out and dive no, or, yeah. or even like it has separate to be that much. Literally right in his chest plate, or he's not yeah. going to catch it. That's so. And then then he goes and he throws a dime to Scotty Miller, just like a dropping of you know. The only time that I feel like the only time that Brady was really throwing dimes this year was whenever he was targeting Scotty Miller. I I <laughs> yeah no I really like I'm surprised because even that that touchdown to Fournette earlier in the and think a that's little the bit of a rough game. throw yeah yeah it's like you look at that throw you're like oh my god he look he looks like he almost missed that throw and then scotty miller it's like you see him wind up it's like he's gonna drop that right like in his hands like it yeah. looks like he went up and handed it off to him it was amazing yeah. but i think every other throw was kind of surprisingly off yeah no you're definitely right like both i will say and at least in the first half both quarterbacks kind of showed their age a little bit but also i think we could we could credit the defensive side of the ball as well for giving multiple looks and stuff like that, because Tom Brady is not someone that's easily fooled despite, you know, his senile age at 43 years old. Um, <laughs> with like all due respect, yeah, with all due respect, of course um, he, you know, he's not easily fooled. So I think if you really look at the game from a four quarter aspect, Tom Brady adjusted and adjusted fantastically as the game went along, because not only was it a tale of two halves for both teams, for both quarterbacks, because Tom Brady looked awful in the first half and then made every throw that he needed to make in the second half with one of the better defenses in the league. That bested him two times in the regular season, too. That's true, too. Which, and, you know, like, he looked really good. And on the other side of the ball, too, um, maybe this is just me trying to – hold on to whatever great memories I have of Drew Brees, but I don't think the wide receivers or really any of his weapons did everything they possibly could to win this game because, you know, the Jared Cook fumble, that was just really a great play by Anton Winfield Jr. Like, I, I don't really think that had anything to do with a mental lapse. Like, it was just a perfect punch, you know what I mean? Like, a perfect bounce to Devin White. Um, Michael Thomas not having a single catch 
in the game where you're supposed to be a top five wide receiver and this defense, you know, this, this secondary is probably towards the bottom half of the league. Like that is just borderline. Like that, that's pretty terrible. And that's pretty telling on what kind of season Michael Thomas really had that he couldn't even get open for his patented slant route. Like, you know, he, he, he wasn't open at, at all. And, and really what, what could Breeze do with they, – they bottled up Alvin Kamara well as well. Let's give the credit where credit's due. What could Breeze really do with Emmanuel Sanders and Jared Cook being his top two targets in this game? Yeah, and um, I, I think you're spot on there, especially if you're going to be Michael Thomas and talk about yourself like you're the number one wide receiver in the league. I mean, and they grant- get shut out by Jamal Dean of all people. Yeah, granted, he hasn't been, he hasn't had the greatest, you know, if whatever you're used to from Drew Brees, he's he's a shell of that, you know, whatever he's used to of Drew Brees, not even like of prime Drew Brees, just since he's been in the league, but still, there was the the interception, uh, Sean Murphy bunting. Uh, that was a bad pass. It it was a bad pass. Um, but especially when it comes to getting physical at the line of scrimmage, there. I mean, it looks like Drew obviously expected him to like not mind the contact and just like you know out muscle him. You're allowed that kind of physical play at the line of scrimmage. And honestly, this whole weekend, I, I, I this is a total side note sidebar, but I'm so glad that it was not. There were like no games really decided by like pass interference calls and like. Oh, thank God! Uh, yeah. Yeah, like defensive holding calls because it gets so ticky tacky. I mean, the, just the fact that we were able to watch people actually like, you know, prove it, you know, prove your stuff. Are you number one wide receiver in the league? Show us that you can be a number one wide receiver. Yeah, well, in the league. he didn't. It wasn't like, oh, he, he flew downfield and uh, or, or not even downfield because Breeze hasn't been hitting any passes that deep. But it's not like he got caught, you know, just like slight grab of the jersey and then, you know, converted a, a third down by by way of by penalty yeah right yeah I, I mean it was it really showed that if you want to blame it on breeze you want to blame it on on the weapons obviously there's there's too much of a of a disconnect there i think for this to i i, I mean for this to keep going breeze obviously announced he's going to retire or he plans on retiring so it won't he did say that he was going to take time but okay. from all the reports especially like someone as like reliable as jay glazer saying before the game that like this is basically yes he is saying goodbye like I don't really think there's see this is where I I think like this is a fault in Drew Brees where it's like okay yes like you know he threw for under 200 yards threw one touchdown to three picks like in his quote-unquote final game I think he you had more yards see. than Lamar Jackson. Yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, I guess if there's that no, one he saving didn't. Sorry. grace. Oh, <laughs> God damn it. Not even, not even one saving grace. But, like, you could see on this. I even told my dad when, I'm, when we were watching it. I said, like, he looks like he's contemplating his career right there on the sideline. He's like, he literally, the face that he, he was making, I was, he, he looked like he was saying to himself, there's no way I can go out like this. Like, I have to come back and, like, avenge this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, and at, at one point where it's like, all right, when's enough is enough. Like, when, mm-hmm. when a regular season game, like, you go out there and, God forbid, you break your leg and then that's how it ends. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Drew, you have nothing left to prove. You won a Super Bowl. You know, you countless accolades and and passing yard records, and you're one of the greatest of all time. Like it, it, it really is. Like, I, I'm fine with that. If that's the way that he ends ends it on on a sour note like that, 
that doesn't change the way I think about him or his legacy at all. It shouldn't change the way anyone thinks about his legacy at all, honestly, because he's Drew Brees at the end of the day. And, you know, he's what, 41, 42 years old. Um, Not everyone could be Tom Brady. Let's just leave it like that and be 43 and then dropping dimes. Well, like, you know, I'm a a Giants fan. So I got to see Eli Manning go from Super Bowl MVP to bench for Daniel Jones by the end of his career. So it's the fall from grace is really like, you know, you really stay on top of the game as as you, as you exit. Father Um, time is undefeated. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to say Eli ended his career triumphantly by uh, having that amazing last game of the year when the giants were, I I don't even remember what the record was. We were like, he also screwed the giants out of chase young. I just want you to know that too. So I'm not even bothered by that. I just mean that. Okay. Thanks. I listen, I'm a jet fan. I need more. I need something. No, I, I get it. And, um, just, uh, you know, you want to say he went out on top because because he had a good game while the Giants haven't been competitive in like the last roughly like five years. Uh, and, and meanwhile, the Saints have been consistently making it to the playoffs and, you know, Breeze hasn't looked the same. And obviously this game was kind of, you know, the last proof you needed to say, well, he really doesn't look. Yeah, um, this is still it, it's not it's not the Super Bowl ending, but it's. He did as much as he could with what he had left in the tank, I think. And yeah. uh, you can't take that away from him. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's, it's admirable, too, especially like there, there are a few people in the NFL that are as tough as Drew Brees. Like the man is undersized for the quarterback position. Throughout his career, before the last few years, when they really did get him a good offensive line, man was taking countless shot after shot after shot and just getting up and finishing the game, toughing it out. You know, and this year was really the scare where he had 11 fractures in his ribs and stuff like that. That was really, to me, honestly, if you had to, to say, oh, well, when did you think Drew knew that, like, this was the last season? Like, that's it right there. Like, when you basically fracture every rib in your body, like, it, that, yeah, that's pretty telling. That was but, a tough one for him. Yeah, but um, like I said, really, if this is it, like, I do think this should be it as well. Um, uh, Hall of Fame career, no doubt. Ama- like, amazing player, amazing person. What he's done for the city of New Orleans, you know, especially the timeline of his, of his arrival and the timeline of everything that he did, you know, charitable work, winning them a Super Bowl, everything Hurricane Katrina. He really was a godsend for that city. And he's a legend in New Orleans, and he's a legend in the NFL. So... If it is the end, congratulations, a, a great career. Many memories for anyone in our age group, you know? Yeah. So well, looking forward to repeating the, that, uh, all that about Tom Brady in, you know, 15 years when he finally decides to hang it up. But <laughs> when, he, when he creates the wheelchair football league because he, <laughs> he goes not – because he's not settled uh, after 10, 10 Super Bowl titles. But, yeah. Um, yeah, that's really all I want to say on that. If you want to get into, obviously, we have two games next week. Yeah. That we have to preview for is the Chiefs and the Bills. The first game actually is the Buccaneers and the Packers, which I was surprised about. I would think that Joe Buck would march into Fox's office oh, and God. demand, and demand, um, you know, sucking uh, Tom Brady just a little bit more this season. Um, they have that too. game. But um, it's unfortunate for Joe Buck, and I feel really bad for him and Troy Aikman. Yeah. They have to call the crap. With, uh, 
they have yeah. to call crap that is uh Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. So yeah. Um but aren't kids really I'm gonna sum it up for you like this, and I'm really not gonna say anything other than this. If Patrick Mahomes plays, I think the Chiefs win. If Patrick Mahomes doesn't play, I think the Bills blow them out. I think Christian Vitali said it in our group chat best. Yeah. And I think I'm just gonna leave it at that. I really think that's my preview. Yeah, I hate making predictions. Um especially like just when there's so many things, not so many things up in the air. The big one is Mahomes. Um, but that's, that's literally it. <laughs> can you think of anything that's, that's riding on the game more than that? Like, do you get your star quarterback or not? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the star quarterback, like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I could, could I see the chiefs pulling it out without him? Maybe I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be so quick to call it a blowout, I guess, but, um, mm-hmm. Well, it, is probably, it is Andy Reid at the end of the day, so you, you de- you're definitely right about that. He'll have a couple tricks up his sleeve. Well, even yeah, even so, I mean, they, I mean, they looked good without uh, any real. I mean, Edwards Hilaire didn't play, and uh, and Le'Veon Bell uh, was like Sucked. a non-factor throughout the entire game. So you know, even with with the limited reps running back in Darrell Williams, they managed to still run all over the Browns, who are decent defense, or even mm-hmm. are they good? They're good defense, even. I mean. Um, They'd be a little bit. Uh, they have their days, <laughs> and they were they're a little bit unhealthy. They were a little bit uh, caught by the injury bug, I think, as you noted in your last show. Um, yeah. So, but that's still a guy who hasn't really been with the first team offense. hasn't you know hasn't really had the reps. So if that's how the rest of the team can play with this next man up attitude, I mean, I'm not saying Chad Henney's gonna go out there and throw for 300 yards and look like Mahomes, but um, if any team is suited to say just plug in a quarterback. Maybe maybe this could be – maybe they keep it close. I still think you're right. The Bills would win, though. Yeah. Um, you know, That's me trying to sell it as being anything other than a Bills-dominating uh, uh, blowout. But, you know, never yeah. know. Yeah, that's true, too. And, you know, the Chiefs defense really isn't as bad as everyone thinks it is. They, they played pretty well today, too, as well. But if I want to break it down just a little bit more – I would say <laughs> I tried, I mean, which I, I try to. I mean, um, really, for both teams, it just comes down to pass defense because, like, these guys are just going to sling it no matter what. Brian Dayball, the offensive coordinator, clearly has a fetish for passing the football. Uh, so does Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy. Like, you know, they, it's it's going to be a game where you might see like maybe fifteen or twenty combined rushing attempts that yeah. aren't from the quarterback. Um, but honestly, like, I really hope Patrick Mahomes plays not only just to see Patrick Mahomes play, Patrick Mahomes play, but to see the two guys with the two strongest arms in football, finally, like duke it out with a game. That's like, obviously the most meaningful game of the season for both teams. Yeah. And the future at the quarterback position for sure too. Um, I mean, that seems like it was going to be the case either way in the AFC, but, uh, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the NFC is like the complete opposite, but you're definitely right. Yeah, it's going to be nice to see them actually get to go head-to-head if Patrick Mahomes is healthy. I hope he is. And his health is number one because a yeah. concussion, um, especially to that magnitude where you could just tell right on the field, like oh, yeah. right then and there, like it's scary. And especially you would hate to see any prolonged you know, injuries or any long-term effects of someone like Patrick Mahomes, anyone really, but someone as important to the game of football as Patrick Mahomes. Without a doubt. Um, but also the Bills, like if he doesn't play, the Bills have to play better because they didn't run into an easy defense with the Ravens, but you also noted it best that Chiefs defense is no pushover. So yeah. uh, Mahomes or not, 
they can't do what they did. You know, I don't think, uh, I don't think 17 points is going to cover it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really that's even with Chad Henney, I don't think 17 points would cover it. Yeah. So that's going to be about as good as the preview I can come up with for, uh, <laughs> for chief bills, but, um, yeah. Now, not for the want of trying. Yeah, I mean, we really did try. You could really tell in that one. We did try. There's just really nothing else to say about that. But moving on to the NFC Championship game. Now, this one really interests me because, make no mistake about it, Aaron Rodgers, it seems like that petty type of douche. Like, and I'm not saying that he's like a, I mean, like a guy that will like hold a grudge for like years just to get like retaliation. And what I mean by that is, the Buccaneers handed the Packers their worst loss of the season. And that was also Aaron Rodgers' worst game of the season earlier this year. The Packers jumped out to a 10-0 lead. The Buccaneers wound up winning 38-10. to Yeah. So they really kind of – and on national TV too. They embarrassed the Packers on national TV. Did Adams play in that game? I think he did too. I think he, yeah, I think he I, I think he I still had like over 100 receiving yards because go figure. But – um what I'm saying is you don't think that this has been in the back of Aaron Rodgers' mind when he saw that like playoff bracket and was like, all right, he's circling that. And he's like, you know, if it gets to this between the Bucks and the, and, and the Packers, you know, I'm, I'm going hard. And obviously that means nothing. Like, I don't, I don't want to say it means nothing, but like, obviously he's going to go out there and try and win. Like he wants to go to the Super Bowl. Like, but I'm just saying that extra added like oomph where it's like, yeah. I really want to stick it to you. And I really want to stick it to Tom Brady. And because, uh, I mean, who wouldn't? Like, I love Tom Brady, and I think he's the greatest quarterback of all time. And if I had a chance to best Tom Brady, like, why wouldn't you want to? Like, why wouldn't you want to best the GOAT? You know what I mean? And Aaron Rodgers is probably, talent-wise, probably the most talented quarterback, I feel like, in NFL history. Like, just pure arm talent and everything. If you just wrap him up, I mean, Patrick Mahomes is, is still, we, we've yet to see, you know what he could do throughout the, the longevity that Aaron Rodgers has. But, you know, I think he's the most talented quarterback in NFL history. And I feel like maybe Aaron Rodgers feels a little disrespected that he hasn't had his just desserts when it comes to, you know, the, the goat conversation, you know, and maybe this is his launching pad where they might go out and try and embarrass the, the, the Buccaneers. But then on the Buccaneers side of the ball, you know, did, did you think that the Buccaneers were going to win tonight? I didn't think they were going to win. Um, I mean, obviously, I guess if you keep starting possessions in your opponent's red zone and you just let Tom Brady throw like one or two passes, one or two completions to get you down to the goal line or into the end zone, then, you know, you're not asking much out of that offense, which mm-hmm. we've seen can be potent. Yeah. But in, you know, regular scenario where they're not getting the ball down in their opponent's goal line pretty much and they're starting back at their 20, that offense didn't look like it was consistent enough to beat the Saints defense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they had the luxury of running the ball 30-plus times against the Saints. I don't even know if anyone's done that this year. Brady only threw for 199 yards, and they've scored 30 points. So uh, not that you couldn't see that happening against the Packers, I mean, but because anything can happen. But yeah. it's um, they can't come out like that, you know. They, they, they can't just rely on, no. on getting the ball in great field position every every possession. Yeah, because with a man that turns over the ball as little as Aaron Rodgers does – yeah, that, and Brady I could think, have been picked like two times too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Aaron Rodgers threw two interceptions in that game against the Bucks the first time, and that's significant considering the man only threw five interceptions the entire season. But like, 
One of them was a tip, if I remember. Yeah, and like that's the thing right there where it's like, oh, yes, 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 because it was a pick six. I remember he actually threw a yeah. pick six too, which was like so shocking because I think it was the first time he threw a pick since, six since like 2011 or something like that. You know when they have a stat on that, it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, Rodgers doesn't turn the ball over at, at all, and really that should be the key. Too. And really, Drew Brees didn't really turn the ball over that much this year either. And if the Bucks defense can force turnovers, it doesn't really matter who they're they're playing. They're putting themselves obviously in a better position to win. But I feel like I feel like the only way that they can win is if Aaron Rodgers turns the ball over. Because if Aaron Rodgers has a clean pocket and he could sit back there for two, three, four seconds and just read the defense, he'll pick you apart limb from limb. Yeah. Well, don't pull one out of the Rams playbook and just drop into zone because you can't cover uh, Adams and, and, you know, account for all the other options. Because if you do that, I mean, their pass rush is, it looks, it looks pretty decent. I mean, especially, I don't want to say like that they're better than the Rams because I think we're just, it's a not really a comparison worth making. Yeah. But um, they can get to the quarterback and I think they will more often than the Rams were able to. I don't know if the Rams had a sack. They might've had one sack. Maybe. I don't um, know. The, the, that's the thing, too. Another key aspect is the the Packers' offensive line is probably yeah. the best Aaron Rodgers has ever had, where they've yeah. kept him upright for most of the season. That and between the pass rush and, and, a, and a Valdez Cantling uh, pop-up in the air, it's there's I don't see any way he's going to actually like just misread a coverage or throw into triple coverage. I mean, he he did a couple of times, granted, in the Rams game towards the end of the first half for no Yeah, he, just, he was just making unwarranted throws at that yeah, point. Yeah, he was going – he was pulling out the Henny card, but, yeah, was, you know – He was I, going straight cowboy right there. He was just like, let me just try and get this touchdown before before time expires. Yeah, it's almost like – that's, I think, and not to go back, that's where you said he – you know, they were not that they were coasting, but they kind of, like, seemed confident in controlling the game. Mm-hmm. He won't do that in NFC Championship game, not with Tom Brady on the other sideline. So, yeah. uh, in that regard, does he turn over the ball? It's going to depend on the pass rush. Yeah. And also, um, I, I hate to always bring in like, you know, home field and, and weather and all that kind of stuff. But the early projection for Uh-oh. next week is, is snow and it's going to be cold. It's going to be in the low 30s. And that's like the projection now. So obviously, it's going to get probably worse as time goes on. But another weather thing, polar vortex coming. Another thing that's significant is. Aaron Rodgers has never, I'm pretty sure, has never, I think he's only played one AFC championship game at home in his uh, NFC championship game, excuse me, at home in his career. And that was against the Giants, and we all know what happened then. So um, go ahead. No, no, I ain't got nothing. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something smart about the Giants beating Aaron Rodgers at home, but Aaron Rodgers finally gets a chance to avenge that home AFC. NFC championship game loss to the giants because the last three championship games he's played have been all away from home. So, and never has he had an NFC championship game with the road to the super bowl, having uh Tom Brady in the way, usually it's, he's in the AFC. So that's, uh, that's interesting yeah. for him. You know, I mean, you would expect with how many times Brady's made it to the super bowl and won the super bowl that Rogers would have opposed him more. Um, mm-hmm. at that stage, instead they get to meet NFC championship game Packers home court. So, you know, this is pretty big for Rogers. I think I think you've really set the stage for just how big that must be to him on a personal level. Yeah, hundred so, uh, percent. 
uh, one one I usually try and throw a, a a fact in there every once in a while. Uh, Ooh, let's hear a, it. Let's a mind blowing fact. This is this is absolutely crazy. This is Tom Brady's fourteenth championship game. Like, obviously, the first thirteen came in the AFC. So, and only six rings. But like, think about that for a second. Some teams in their entire, I'm pretty sure the Bears have never been. The Bears have been around since like 1908, and they've never been to like 14 championship games. You know what I mean? Like. That is that is that's one of the more absurd stats I've ever heard, like in my entire life. That like it just proves like the greatness like of Tom Brady. And I I I hate saying that because, you know, I yeah. I hated Tom Brady for so long, but I, I know <laughs> that's another thing that I I also say. I'm I'm grateful that I could watch Tom Brady now where it won't personally affect me. So I could really actually watch how good he is without just being like, Oh God, I hope you break your leg every time you drop back. You know, like now it's like, I could finally sit there and be like, Jesus Christ, like this is what I was watching for years. And I've seen live multiple times and like, didn't even really, you know, like didn't yeah. even realize it, but I'm getting off into a little, you know, catty corner there that I, I don't want to get into, but um, so I'm super excited about this. I'm probably going to, I'm thinking about actually at one point during this week, maybe hopping on another podcast, just as more developments come out, maybe just a, a quick 30, you know, a 25, 30 minute podcast, just really previewing more going into depth of the championship games uh, for you guys, for everyone who, who's listening and, and all that kind of stuff, because I feel like we really just scratched the, the surface. We could be sitting here all night, all day. Talk. I don't know how long we've been going, by the way. It, it's probably going to be one of my longest podcasts ever, but I don't even care. This is a great conversation, um, not only between friends, but it's it, it's just good talk, man. It really is. And there's only one – there's one last thing that I wanted to bring up. It is about football. Not as important, obviously, as what's been going on, but uh, we do have some head coaching uh, changes in the NFL uh, to start off. Obviously, the first one that was announced was the Jaguars um, hiring Urban Meyer, the college football legend. Then you have the Jets hiring arguably the most intense man in football in Robert Sala. I thought you were going to say Adam Gase. Um, way to just kill my buzz there on that one. <laughs> the Falcons hired um, Arthur Smith, the offensive coordinator from the Tennessee Titans, and the Chargers tonight before we hopped on the podcast, actually hired uh, Brendan Staley, the defensive coordinator from the Rams, who's done a tremendous job the last couple of years over there. And there's one that is waiting to be finalized. The Lions uh, hired Dan Campbell, who, if you guys remember way back, um, I don't remember what year it was. I think it was like 2012 or 2013. He took over um, for 11 games for Joe Philbin for the Miami Dolphins after he got fired and went six and whoa, that was not going to equate to a, a 11 games. I was going to say six and seven. It might've been 13 games. I know that he went six and seven. So obviously six plus seven is 13. So I think I'm doing my math right there. Shout Don't out Miss Fong. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but um, there's only two coaching jobs that are uh, available. Uh, and both of them are arguably like just putrid. And if you ask me, I think the Jets job is more appealing than either of these two. Uh, the, the Houston Texans and the Philadelphia Eagles. 
So I just wanted to get your take on this because I, I think you know my stance on the Jaguars um, hiring Urban Meyer. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, I don't have as much of an informed opinion. I usually like defer to you for that kind of stuff, especially when it comes to like college football and whatnot. Um, Urban Meyer, football legend uh, in the college, in, in, in the college football like sphere. Um, I guess he hasn't made the jump to the NFL before, right? No, this is his first um, head coaching gig in the NFL. So we don't really know if it's going to be like a like a Saban thing when he went to uh, to Miami for I don't even was it like a year? Like that was before we were even really watching football. Yeah. But um, you know, uh, it's not a lot to work with, and there's more questions than answers in uh, yeah. in Jacksonville. So uh, as far as recruiting goes he's always been a good recruiter in florida ohio state mm-hmm. so um it's obviously not just about uh getting a five star or five five star recruits from high school anymore it's uh <laughs> there's a salary cap and stuff so um we'll see what he can do with really not a lot of i mean not a lot of talent and not a lot of real answers there on the yeah. team already um they're doing uh gm interviews as well right I believe so, yeah. I'm only saying because I want to confirm that they are actually talking to or they already spoke to Jerry Reese. So, oh, you know, dear. as a as a Giants fan, that's um oh, dear. that one <laughs> I I never thought he'd be getting a an uh, interview. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess for for a team that has like like I was saying, literally not a lot of talent and not a lot of answers on their roster, you could take a shot and say, "Hey, he was, you know, he found some good players with the Giants and he was around for some of their success. Yeah. Um, I guess if it comes down to him or, or Lewis Riddick, uh, I don't know what your take on, on that is, but uh, I personally Riddick. like Lewis Riddick, but I don't know if I just like him because he's on TV, but um, I definitely don't like Jerry Reese. <laughs> <laughs> one, you know, one thing that, that you said that really resonates with me about Urban Meyer is um, good recruiter. See, I have a a take about most college coaches, to be honest with you, like like Urban Meyer, like Nick Saban, Ed Orgeron, guys like that who are at these monumental um, football programs. programs. Yeah, is they're better recruiters than they are coaches. That's just my opinion. Nick Saban, you know what? You get the best talent in the in the nation. You could turn that into seven national titles. I don't really necessarily think you need to be a great coach. Is he the greatest coach uh, in college football history? Probably. But that's very bad at insurance commercials. Uh, yeah, to throw mean, that, out there. that Aflac commercial is just <laughs> it's horrendous. horrendous. He has no emotion whatsoever, but he's literally the college version of Bill Belichick. But um, I, I don't necessarily, I, I didn't like it from the beginning. I think this was more of a, hey, we owe you kind of hire. And I know the Jaguars have nothing to do with Florida University, but he's just such a legend in Florida that I feel like right away, as soon as Urban Meyer like threw his proverbial like John Deere hat into the ring, um, he was, they were like, oh, all the fans were like, I oh, got to hire Urban Meyer. Like, look what he did at Florida. Like, okay. Like when you have, at the time, Florida had the best talent in the nation and look what he was able to do. You go from Florida to Ohio State. Ohio State's another one of those teams that always gets top talent. Like, I to me, nothing about his resume screams like, yes, he will be a success. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. 
Um, well, it looks like, I mean, the enemy was supposed to interview for Houston. And I think he said he didn't even want to go to the interview, but it looks like they actually did have the interview in Jacksonville with the enemy. So, um, yeah, the consensus with the enemy, what I told Ethan the other day was the enemy interviewed with Atlanta and Atlanta's feedback was he did not do well and he's struggling in interviews. So I don't know. I know he, he interviewed with the Jets. There was no um, feedback on that. And he also interviewed with Jacksonville, and there was no feedback on that either. So I don't really think that I, – I really think that we're going to go the entire head coaching hiring season without seeing Biennemi signed. I don't think that – I think Biennemi really? is kind of scared. There's a hot take. To move on to be a head coach because I don't necessarily think that he is – as big of a part of that chief's offense or the development of Patrick Mahomes as people think that runs counter to everything we've heard about the enemy though. Right. Doesn't it? It's like everything you hear is like how talent, how amazing he is with talent and how much of an offensive guru. I know you hate that the uh, offensive guru talk and all that. <laughs> um, you know, it, it all depends on personality too. And Eric B has one of the more fun personalities in, in football as well. But just, you know, because you could relate to players, you know what I'm saying, and you get them to play harder for you, doesn't necessarily mean that your schemes or your ideas are good. Right. So, And, you know, granted, you have one of the greatest offensive minds in the history of NFL as your confidant at an Andy Reid, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I, I, I think Eric Bieniemy, if I had to describe him in a term, I think it's fool's gold, honestly. Ooh. Um, and that's not a knock on him at all, like, what he does in his role in Kansas city is vital to that team. But I think we have another Josh McDaniels situation where Josh McDaniels left the Patriots coached for one season in Denver and then left and came back to the Patriots because I think he knew that he can't survive without Bill Belichick. And I think Eric B believes that he can't survive without Andy Reid. Yeah. And I mean, that might be true. Um, I don't know if that, I, I mean, for what we know about Urban Meyer, uh, I don't know if that necessarily, I mean, that would make him to, to say that then, you know, the enemy's that like you're that concerned with his success away from like Andy Reid and Andy Reid system and just, you know, how much he actually can prove on his own. Uh, Urban Meyer's also kind of in the same territory as yeah. at, at least as far as NFL coaching is concerned. So, um, I mean, I guess I would ask that question, but, uh, they also interviewed uh, Raheem Morris and uh, Robert Salah, so maybe you guys, you know, the Justice got to him for, got to their guy first, and uh, yeah. maybe it was between Urban Meyer and the enemy, and they just said, "Hey, you know, maybe it's like you said that he was just kind of due at this point in his career. He put his he put his um he put himself out there for a coaching job, and he got one." Yeah, I I think that is, uh, you know, I'm not I. There's really no take on this. Do I like the hire? Not really. Uh, am I gonna sit here and bash it? No, because. We've seen worse hires turn into great additions. Sure. You know yeah. what I mean? So I'm not going to sit here and just be like, oh, yeah, this is terrible. But his body, if you go by his body of work in college football, then he might translate to be a great coach. Yeah. I want to move on. I don't really want to speak much about um, the Jets hire. There's a video um, for that on YouTube as well. <laughs> but. I, I, yeah, I, I do come up with a lot of relevant um, YouTube content. So you guys are really missing out if you're not subscribed and, uh, and keep up with that. But basically what I want to say is I, I, what I said in my, in my Jets video, the last one I posted was 
the Jets need a leader of men, someone that will hold his staff and his players accountable. And I think that they got the absolute perfect fit for someone like that. Like Robert Salah is a leader of men everywhere you go. He has sparkling reviews from not only players, but you know, other, other coaches and everything like that. He's just a, his ties run deep. And I don't think people realize how long he's actually been coaching, not only just in general in the NFL where he was the linebacker coach for the Seattle Seahawks when they won the Super Bowl. So like, no one knows that. And like, I didn't you know, know that. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, he, he's been around a long time. He's not just this guy that came out of nowhere and was like, yes, you'll be the defensive coordinator. And then in two years, you will find a head coaching gig. Like this was his opportunity to shine being the defensive coordinator and what he's done the last couple of years, especially last year with a, a defense that lost two of its key players in Nick Bosa and Solomon Thomas. And to make them a top five defense throughout the entire year, despite being like, I think they were six and 10 or seven and nine, one of those, one of those two. Um, and has still have a top five defense is pretty remarkable. And um, I'm hoping that this is a, a, a change. This is a turn of the tide. I'm not going to sit here and, and praise it to, you know, to the end of the earth or whatever, you know, because we don't know. And especially being a jet fan, I'm, I can't tell you how many times I've, said to people that I love or my friends or stuff out oh, this is this is the hire so I'm just going to sit back this time I'm going to give you my piece on what I think of Robert Sala I think I, I personally think it's a good hire for what the Jets need and I just hope it works out I hope that he finds success and I hope that he leads the Jets past two and 14. And I mean I don't really have you know I mean if I were to throw my two cents at it it would be that you know anyone worry about uh Robert Sala being able to coach an offense and uh, what he'll, you know, the Jets offense isn't going to regress, you know, any more from this year than it will under a first year head coach who's considered defensive mind and a defensive coordinator. I mean, uh, we don't know a lot, you know, especially in terms of just uh, definitely with any first year head coach, like what to expect from them, whether mm -hmm. it's Urban Meyer or, you know, someone who's actually been coaching at the NFL level. Um, but you really can't you can't expect the Jets to somehow be worse than they were this year. And that was with yeah. somebody who was touted as highly as Adam Gase was in Oof. some circles, at least offensively. Uh Colin Cowherd is still, you know, trying to figure out how to delete that video off the internet and get rid of that tweet about that people still go back to that tweet about him saying some pretty the awful AFC takes, championship t shirt. <laughs> yeah, I, I um it's it's like you said. It's better to just kind of sit back and, yeah, and just see watch what happens. What happens. With this one. Yeah. I mean, the Jets are going to be one to sit back and watch just in every you know in every aspect of, of football to see what yeah. happens. But uh, especially in the next couple of weeks when the Jets trade three of their first round picks to get Deshaun Watson, we'll see what oh, happens. No, no, I had a whole thing. I had a whole rant about Deshaun Watson, but I'll save it. Um, I, I don't want to hear it. You know why? Because Deshaun Watson is fantastic, and it's not. It's not necessarily <laughs> about him. It's it's more about you know the the organization of the Houston Texans being Good Lord criticized as as much as they were, especially by you and and Garber earlier in the show. Um, you know, that, that whole thing about him being angry because of uh, he didn't get to pick his GM or, or whatever, or have any say in the GM. It's like, you don't, who, who gets upset about not being able to pick their boss, you know? So, I mean, just to get, before we move on to the next coach, the, from what I was to understand was upon signing the extension, the owner and the GM at the time, or well, the GM and the coach at the time was Bill O'Brien was right. that it was an understanding that he would get not, he wouldn't get a say 
he would be asked of his opinion and his opinion would be taken into account. And the fact that he wasn't asked about the GM at all, and he wasn't asked about who they would be interviewing. I, I, that would sit wrong with me too, honestly, because, you know, I don't think Deshaun was really like a hundred percent like hell bent on resigning with Houston so I think and I can't blame him for him, that. Yeah, no, you definitely can't blame him for that. And I think that they just kind of told him what he wanted to hear at the time. And then once the contract is signed and there's really nothing that he could do about it, that's that's when they were going to tell him, well, we took it in this direction and we didn't tell you why because of this. And that's where I can understand where the frustration is. And especially, you know, with there has to be some kind of dysfunction in the organization if old old heads like Andre Johnson, who was there from the beginning and stuff like that, have come out and said, oh, he's absolutely right, his frustrations and all that kind of stuff. And DeAndre Hopkins has said it and stuff like that too. I mean, D-Hop is a little outspoken when it comes to the Houston Texans organization, but there's got to, you know, if enough players come out and say something, there's got to be something dysfunctional there. And I think Deshaun Watson is too talented of a player to waste more of his years in Houston, you know, despite the fact that he's only 26 years old. Yeah. Uh, I think he's one of the best quarterbacks in football. And I mean, granted, this is me trying to make a case for Deshaun Watson getting traded to the Jets, which is another horribly dysfunctional organization, but they seem to be trending in the, in, in the right direction, sort of, kind of so far. So maybe, maybe, hopefully, please, God. Um, but I, I think, it, listen, the Jets might be as dysfunctional as they are, but they don't flat out lie to their players. So there's that. At least not in any way that we've that we've known that we've seen public, publicly. I guess. But yeah. in in the end, everyone likes to talk about how it's a business. It's a business. So you know, I guess you can't really take any of those. I don't see how you could take those things personally. I mean, I get everyone coming out and in support of it and saying that he's doing the right thing because maybe the organization is as bad as everyone says it is, mm-hmm. uh, which. Granted, from what we've seen in terms of player person, uh, player relationships and player personnel in the past, with especially the Hopkins saga, um, and whatever they did with Osweiler all those years ago, and offering him that ludicrous contract. Good lord! Um, <laughs> you know, there's a case to be made, but if that if that's it, and the writing's on the wall, and and you think that uh, this GM is possibly going to have some is going to play some role in your demise there, then uh, doesn't it kind of just like I mean, it kind of like solves everything. It kind of like washes your hands of the situation. You don't have to come out and act more outspoken about it than you already are. You know, yeah. I mean, you go out, you play football. If the team doesn't put a winner around you and you don't resign, then you win in that regard. You know, he. I, it's not like he doesn't have anything to prove. He still has. I mean, the Texans have gone nowhere, and that's not all a fault of his. But uh, you know, it, it's not. Uh, it's not the Brady and and Belichick situation where it's like. Brady still thinks he can win and, and the Patriots are ready to start losing. You know, uh, this yeah. is a kid who's young, like you said, 26 and the organization is, you know, probably one of the worst in the league. That's for sure. But um, the, the incredible amount of support making it seem like this is the right way of handling it sort of confused me, not because mm-hmm. it's not true or not because he doesn't have a, a right to say it, but it's like we know what we know what the Texans are and we know more or less what the situation there with him is. I mean, even if he did have a say in the general manager or, or he got to talk about it or approve or whatever, it doesn't sound like he would really want to resign there anyway. Yeah. So 
this all sounds like sour grapes and media attention like they were trying to you know find a story for the day but it ended up being bigger than i thought and uh that was huge i'm upset i even had to talk about it because it's like what's what's really the point yeah if he wants out, he'll be out. If he wants yeah, to stay, he'll then be on the Jets in a couple of weeks. It's fine. Um, as long as they don't trade three first round picks for him, because oh lord, have we seen that go wrong before? You know what? At this point, like last thing I'll say about this, I consider Deshaun Watson an elite quarterback. He is. When, ever, do elite quarterbacks become available for trade? No, Next yeah, to never. No. You know, you want to turn the tides of a franchise. You know, you want to do it rather quickly. You just do it, man. Like that literally, like, I know that sounds like stupid coming from my mouth, but at the same time, <laughs> like I, I know it, it, it totally does sound stupid. And I, I, I fully understand why it would. But, you know, say you, you, have, you have two first round picks. You have two first round picks next year. You have, you know, $100 million in cap space. It's really not the end of the world if you trade two, three first round picks. You trade. Now, what will kill you is probably trading the number two overall pick this year. You trade Seattle's pick for next year. And then you trade your 2023 first round pick. And you're still left with two of the next three years, you still have a first round pick. It's really, it doesn't sound as bad as it, it, as it is. And then you use some of that money, say, you, you know, you still have a first round pick this year. Later on in the first round, you take a receiver or, or, or offensive tackle, cornerback. I mean, the Jets literally need everything, so it doesn't matter. They could, it's pick them at that point. Is, um, the, is the Heisman wide receiver even being talked about that high? I doubt it, right? I mean, it's all quarterbacks at the top, so. There was talks at the beginning if Joe Douglas and Robert Sala like want to keep Sam Darnold, they were considering Devonta Smith at number two. But honestly, there's too many uncertainties, in my opinion. Like this is, of course, the one year that there's like so many good players, but yet so many uncertainties at number two. That's the pick that the Jets have, of course. Like it could right. be a clear cut, like number two pick. So honestly, if there's we're no per- way it doesn't get packaged for Watson, then if that were to happen, <laughs> I would no, I would I would absolutely love see like I'd rather I'd rather trade the number two overall pick and then two other first round picks and get Deshaun Watson because first off, he's established. There's no guarantee whoever you pick with that number two pick is going to be anything special in the NFL. You'd know that Deshaun Watson is special. And I'd rather trade this is just me. I'd rather trade my draft assets for established talent. Assuming he signs. Oh, he signed already. The, the contract, the, the extension is kicks in next year for four years. Okay. I guess that's long-term enough for three picks. So yeah, I'd take that. And you know, say, say you make it, say you don't make the playoffs next year, but you make the playoffs the th- last three years. He's still only 30 years old. That's what's crazy. He's still only 30 years old at that point. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't want to get too much into it because I'm getting excited right now. And I know <laughs> that it's, it's not going to happen. So, um, Let's just let's just bang out these last couple um, head coaching things, right? The, with the Falcons hiring Arthur Smith, um, he was hot towards the beginning of the season in like head coaching for next year, and he cooled off real quick. And I don't know if that was like a bad omen, but I feel like this was a panic hire by the Falcons. I think honestly, if they just stuck with Raheem Morris as the head coach, I don't really, I wouldn't have found a flaw in that. I think that Raheem Morris. Um, 
did well enough in the time that he took over for Atlanta to at least get a year as the head coach of Atlanta. Like, yeah. I, I definitely think he did a good enough job. Like, the defense played well. Like, they won a few games. They were in the game with the Chiefs to the wire. You know what I mean? Like, they won, They should have won a couple more games than they did. Honestly, they could have been a fringe playoff team at, like, 9-7. and seven. They, yeah. they would have been a playoff team at 9-7 and seven because the, the Bears made it 8-8. Eight and eight, So Yeah, the extra I, wild I feel, card. I feel like this is a, a panic hire, in my opinion. I, I was high on Arthur Smith at first, but – you know, seeing how teams kind of cooled off on him towards the hiring process kind of made me feel like, oh, they're seeing something that we're really not. So apparently yeah. he's credited with the turnaround of Ryan Tannehill and, and apparently he he's the run game coordinator with Derrick Henry. So hopefully he could squeeze the last bit of orange juice that's in the orange that is Matt Ryan. And, you know, we could see a little bit more greatness from Matt Ryan. I don't really have much else to say about that one because, you know, it's, purely an offensive hire like the Atlanta Falcons I feel like are just never about defense it's just always about offense with them well if I mean and I agree with you about Raheem Morris getting at least earning a chance you know um to at least continue with the program with with whatever he set up there in Atlanta so I guess the only other thing that I could think about and this is with no knowledge of the situation at all really at all obviously um, maybe Arthur Smith signals like a, a like a kind of a reset for Atlanta because they've been stuck in this and and this is you know under Dan Quinn and and all that but this has been a perpetual a team that's perpetually like we don't know what they are yeah you you previewed them at the beginning of the year that they were you know oh well they started playing better at the end of the year so maybe that's the kind of team that they are you know we don't know they came into the year they were awful they they blew a lot of late game leads and you know if you want to give all of that blame to Dan Quinn I guess you can um he's not there anymore so he makes a perfect scapegoat but going forward it's like do you just hire a new head coach and just keep more or less the same you know style going on just you know yeah he's offensive and the Falcons are an offensive team I mean like you said but uh this isn't going to work for them. Just keep going out there and, you know, oh, well, nobody knows what we really are. It's like, no, I think we kind of know now. You guys start off kind of, at least for the last two years, you start off very uninspiring football or, or you lose late games like you did this year. And the defense never finds its stride until like halfway down to the end of the year. And by then it's either too late because you're chasing the Saints' tails and now Tom Brady's in Tampa. So that's not going to cut it going forward. So maybe Arthur Smith signals a change of direction in that regard. Oh, you know, when you put it that way, I mean, it does sound a little bit better than the way that I spliced it, but um, like, you know, the way that we're, we are previewing and stuff like that, these head coaches, you know, we, we know nothing because literally none of them have been head coaches in the NFL before, which is, 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 is pretty like the only one that has head coaching experience is Dan Campbell. Did I say that right? Is Dan Campbell, right? Yeah. Did I say it? Let me just make sure I, that sounded wrong, but. Yeah, Dan Campbell. It it just sounded wrong. But um and he coached like 13 games. So yeah, that's nothing obviously. Him, yeah. <laughs> but um um the Chargers hiring originally the Chargers hiring Brandon Staley was kind of like off to the side like everyone thought that the Chargers were going to go after Brian Dayball. Um this I feel like is a better hire for the Chargers only because their defense is a mess. And what 
Brendan Staley has done over the past like three or four seasons that he's been there. He came over with Sean McVay. So however long Sean McVay has been there, Brendan Staley has been there. And the way that he remastered, retooled this defense, um, it warrants a head coaching position in my opinion. And what better than the Chargers who have all the offensive firepower in the world, but just can't hold leads, can't get a stop when needed. I think that this is the perfect candidate. If Robert Salah wasn't there anymore, which he wasn't, I think that Brandon Saley was a perfect number two for the head coaching position in LA. Um, he's young. He could relate to players. Like he got the most out of players that were probably older than him on the Rams defense, which is crazy by the way. Um, so I'm hoping to see a change in LA because I feel like the chargers are some of them, like whatever fans they do have, like the 17 that exist. Mm. Um <laughs> funny i i feel like they they are like a worse version of the atlanta falcons like i feel like they just constantly blow leads like they either blow leads or their best players get hurt at the beginning of the season you know what i mean they're just oh, like every a, time they're just a snake bitten organization <laughs> yeah and i hope that this is like a, a sign of the, of different times to come yeah um i mean i was critical about the rams performance on defense yesterday even though they were able to keep the game pretty close, you know, mm-hmm. considering they were going up against Green Bay and, and Aaron Rodgers and, you know, everything we already touched on there. Um, the Rams defense as a unit, I mean, I guess, like you said, speaks for itself since McVay's gotten there. They've been a team where as fun as the offense was that uh, that year where you said golf through 4,500. I don't even remember what year it was. It was two years ago. I think it was when they went to the Super Bowl. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, and even that, that was a defensive showcase. I mean, it's, it's been this team, it, it's been more of this team's identity than anything else. And, uh, you know, if that's all credit to Brandon Staley, cause I, you know, I don't know these things. I don't, I don't, I always, I'm always surprised to find out which coordinators are like the play callers and which ones are just kind of like, uh-huh. you know, personnel people or whatever. And, and the head coach does everything. But to the extent that Brandon Staley is, is owed that credit. I mean, the Rams are, or, you know, testament to to how good of a defensive mind he is and you know maybe it'll translate it'll translate into some uh, head coaching success hopefully that's what i'm hoping for here i was actually pretty high on him i was they when they brought him in for a um when the jets brought him in for an interview i was kind of happy that he was even getting head coaching consideration because i feel like what he's done like we said for the rams the past few years has definitely flown under the radar but i'm happy that he landed in a situation where he's got all the tools now he just kind of has to put everything together um the, the one the one last thing i want to talk about is the the two open head i don't really have anything to say about dan campbell i don't really i i can't even form a take on him i don't really know anything about him i don't know what the lions talked about houston <laughs> i don't know what the lions are doing as an organization i good for dan campbell i guess i don't i don't know but um i th- to even make a prediction about where guys, you know, where the who the Eagles and who the Texans hire, I have a weird feeling that um, the Eagles will hire Brian Dayball because they need an offensive mind. Like they always need an offensive minded coach. I feel like it, that's just been like look, Andy Reid, Chip Kelly, Doug Peterson, whoever this is is going to be an offensive minded coach. So I think Dayball is the perfect hire. He, I mean the the Eagles haven't really had a good run game in years uh, since Brian Westbrook has been the running back pretty much. Not LaShawn McCoy, but um, 
and Brian Dable likes to pass. And there you go right there. I think it's a good fit. I think Dable kind of with the, with the Bills' long playoff run, I feel like he missed out on a lot of head coaching opportunities. So I think he's just going to pounce at the first one that kind of offers him something good. And I mean, the Eagles are pretty like strapped when it comes to the cap and it, the talent's really not there. It might be a, a, a project, but uh, Dable's not getting any younger. And I don't think he's ever had a coaching a head coaching job in the NFL. So I think he just goes straight in for it. And with Houston, I feel like Houston's going to hire a no name guy. I feel like I, I feel really, yeah, I, I feel like it's going to be someone that we completely out of left field. Like, I have a weird feeling that it's going to be like Leslie Frazier. Leslie weird, Frazier? Either uh, him or like Demi. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I, the name. The, the, Bill, the Bills defensive coordinator. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know why the name just didn't stick right away. Either that or like I heard that um, like D'Amico Ryans and um, – Gerard Mayo or something like that. I heard the D'Amico like, Ryan's one. That was funny. Yeah. yeah. I was like, wow, I haven't heard that name in a long time, but um, yeah, I, I, the Texans are a mess. The Eagles are a mess. I really don't know where they go from here. Honestly, I guess I, I could form a take on it when they actually do hire someone, but um, you know, that's, that's pretty much it for, for those two franchises. I don't know what's going on. They're both cash strapped. They have no picks. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. Whoever they're going to have to do some serious enticing if, if they want to get someone with any credibility. I don't know if uh, Jason Garrett's still doing interviews. Um, and I don't know how I feel about him not being on the giants because I didn't really want him at first. And then I was kind of like, well, didn't do too bad, I guess. Yeah. For what he had. Yeah, really. I mean, Stonehands Ingram over there, but oh, goodness. pro bowler. I mean, what a, what a ridiculous. Sorry. He's never coming on the show now. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that's that's completely okay with me. But uh, listen, buddy, I'm not gonna lie to you. It's been a while. It's been a long. It, it this was a long episode, and I'm completely okay with that because that was just like a perf. That was like a that was a a that was a lunchroom talk. I feel like in high school, that was like a. That was like a 37 minute conversation like in high school, but it's like a three hour conversation now because we're both old and, you know, we need our, our drinks of water in between talking because we need to wet our whistles and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too, too into it, but uh, it was really awesome having, I know this is like, I don't want to say it's stupid, but like, you know, having a podcast quote unquote and all that kind of stuff, but being able to talk to your friends and stuff like that. And in, in, in something like this to this magnitude for this long is, is something really cool that I always wanted to do. So, you know, to have you as really my first friend that's on just means a lot to me. So I, I really appreciate you taking the 92 hours out of your day to talk to me about basketball, baseball, and football. So I thank you, Chris, for being on. Well, you know, we never even really got to hockey too. Yeah. Well, you know, not today. <laughs> Just please. <laughs> no, <laughs> that'll be a part two. That, that's how we even became friends, man. We were just talking. We were just talking sports and uh, and definitely not uh, studying and making sure that all we ever got into were uh, were city colleges in, in New York. So yeah, hundred um, percent. We 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 haven't bucked the trend. We're still here. We're still doing it and still going strong. Uh, no, listen. I was honored that you would even have me on the show, man. That's. Uh, couldn't thank you enough for that yeah i'd have you on whenever you want Ooh, I, honestly. well 
I, I mean, I don't know if everyone wants to listen to three hours of me rambling again, but uh, I don't think anyone would want to listen to three hours of anything that I'd put out to be honest with you, but <laughs> that's besides the point. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate the two hour episodes when they come out, but I, I think three hours is really pushing. Yeah, the limit, but we hit, we just did a Rogan. Yeah. Well, when we get on his level, we could do a Rogan then, I guess. Right. <laughs> But uh, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me on. No, of course, man. And um, listen, I, I, if anyone listened up until this point, just, you know, have a salad, take a nap. I don't know. Just, just do something. Get away from your phone or whatever you're listening to on this because, my God, like you have, a, you have a, a nice amount of time on your hands. But I really appreciate everyone who listened. If you listened to even like an hour and a half, I'd, I'd, that would be amazing. Um, probably three hours. I don't even know the, the final time on it. Oh, I'll look. There's nothing to edit. So whatever the final time is, is going to be it. <laughs> but I, I can confidently say that this is my longest episode ever, but I, I wouldn't want to do it with anyone else. And I really appreciate you having I was going to say, I really appreciate you having me on. So that's how late it is, but <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me, man. And I hope that we can do it again sometime soon. No, man. It was a pleasure, my brother. Um, you got to do the plug though. Oh God. That's oh, so that that's, that's really, that was Matthew's thing that I never touched that. I really, I'm glad that I didn't cause that was a lot harder than it looks, but listen, if you listened up until this point, you know, I got to plug it at this point. If you do not know, we are on YouTube at Take This L Sports. Um, we are closing in on 200 subs. Hopefully by the time maybe that you hear this, we already have over 200 subs. That's been a goal of mine for a long time. But please do subscribe if you haven't already. We are on like every single platform known to man, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple, uh, Overcast. I know that that's Chris's favorite uh, thing right there, Overcast. Sponsor me, Overcast. Shout out. Uh, a cast pandora even like whatever it is you could find us there you literally can find us everywhere so there's no excuse for you not to listen at we are on tiktok believe it or not at ttl sports i know that chris doesn't like that but that's okay um i'll live <laughs> we are on instagram at take uh ttl sports ww and we are on twitter at take this l sport one we post most of our content on um our instagram so if you want to see pretty much posts every day we do questions. We do, um, you know, like I said, we do questions of the day on our story. We do opinion questions. Um, we post all the time. So, you know, if, if you want to see a bunch of sports content, you know where to find us. So um, this was episode two, probably episode two, three and four, honestly. But uh, I really appreciate, I appreciate everyone listening. Um, I appreciate Chris for coming on. And until next time, I'm Peter Andersani and thank you for listening.